All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Sunshine and Brain. Um, I know, I know, <laughs> I know it's, it's been a minute. Um, last episode came out April 6th, I think, and it is May 27th. So that is uh, what absolutely qualifies on the street as uh, a minute. Um, gosh, I, it, first of all, this is only episode three. So the chances that I actually have even a single listener who doesn't actually like know me at this point is uh, slim. But if you do exist, uh, I'm sorry. Um, I realize that during a time of global pandemic, there have been a gazillion new podcasts created, um, and uh, 99% of them are going to, uh, you know, fall by the wayside uh, at some point here pretty soon. Um, and that's not uh, the intention here, obviously. Um, you know, if you're following Perry Veritas in general and following the other podcasts we do, Jokes, uh, we've been, uh, you know, continuing to populate that one. This, this podcast is just fucking hard to do, man. Um, it's exhausting. It's vulnerable. It's um, hard to find, you know, guests who are willing to come on. Um, you know, hey, uh, here's this really private, you know, thing that's a major part of your life. Um, come talk about it so that we can put it up on Spotify and uh, literally put it out there for everyone to hear. Um, so that's a pretty hard thing to expect anyone to do. Um, but uh, here we are. Uh, finally, a new episode. I did mess around with the idea of doing uh, some solo episodes actually recorded a little bit of one. I need to think about that a little bit more, uh, figure out a way to make it as engaging and entertaining as possible. Um, I do imagine one day, you know, having episodes where um, I can answer emails and answer questions and really engage with the listeners in that way. Um, but uh, for now, it's, you know, sort of just me talking about shit that I'm going through and shit that I'm thinking about. And uh, I don't know, I already talk about it in therapy, man. So you know, how, how beneficial is it for me to talk about it here in this space? I got to figure that out. But in any case, uh, we're back. Um, this is a really, really good episode. I'm so excited to put this up and share it with you. I hope as many people listen to this as possible. And I also hope that if we ever do become, you know, a very populated podcast that um, folks will make their way to the earliest phases and listen to the early episodes um, my last episode with Andre was so special and wonderful to record this episode as well. I'm just incredibly proud of it and um, excited to share this with you. So uh, first things first, though, how's everybody? I uh, hope everyone's hanging in there. Uh, you know, the whole world is starting to try to figure out how to open up again. Um, and uh, I know from my experience and I'm sure for many of you, that brings a ton of anxiety just as much, if not more anxiety coming in to a global pandemic as there is, uh, you know, sort of going out to going out of it, um, so much to sort of think about and be nervous about and wonder in terms of what's what's coming. So, you know, I really hope everyone is finding their way to their own, you know, version of self self care and um, and hanging in there. Um, I'm going to share in the beginning of this episode with Ben how I'm doing. We recorded just a couple of days ago, so everything I say there is totally relevant to me. Uh, so without further ado, let's let's get to this podcast. So one of the nice things about 
having an, uh, amazing siblings. I've got three incredible little sisters is, uh, you get an opportunity to be introduced to some pretty awesome people. Um, cool people have a tendency to find cool people. And so all three of my sisters, you know, have a pretty amazing group of friends that I've been, um, honored to meet throughout the years and have a chance to get to know and hang out with and have a good time with, et cetera. And, um, my guest today is a guy named Ben Williams, who is one of my sister, Sarah's absolute best friend. Um, she's my middle sister. Uh, she's an incredible human being and, you know, Ben is as well. Um, so I, I'm going to leave the podcast to kind of tell his story, but suffice to say his story is one of, um, you know, trying to figure out who he is in terms of his identity, um, feeling like an outsider for a lot of incredibly important reasons and learning how to find his space, um, and to find, you know, sort of where he fits in community and, and how to think about himself in terms of how that fits in with, um, you know, sort of the kind of life that our society expects us to have. And then, of course, issues with depression and, um, and anxiety that, that, you know, sort of go along with that. So uh, this is a wonderful conversation. I was honored to have it. And um, I'm so excited for you to, you know, hear his voice. He's an incredibly well-spoken um, just, uh, um, you know, sort of wonderful human being. Oh, and by the way, before we start the episode, a couple of quick things. One, um, as always make sure to, you know, like, and review us and, uh, share, uh, um, you know, this episode as well as, you know, all Perry Veritas content with, uh, your friends and neighbors and all that stuff. Um, and, um, if you like Ben and you liked Andre, um, we're actually going to make sure to do, sort of return episodes with, uh, with them. Um, you know, make, you know, obviously we recognize that, uh, mental health is a lifelong journey. And so to do only one episode sort of doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but to check in, you know, every few months and kind of see how things are going and talk about sort of what's going on, uh, can be a really nice way, uh, to explore how it is that, um, your mental health, health is a lifelong journey. Uh, so we'll be doing that. Um, and if you'd like to email me, uh, you can reach me at josh at periveritas.com. Uh, again, that's josh at periveritas.com. So uh, don't hesitate to write. Uh, I promise, uh, at least uh, for sure in these beginning stages, um, I'm going to write everyone back and uh, also make sure um, that uh, your um, email will get on the show and we have a chance to talk. Uh, so anyway, hope you're all well, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Without any further ado, here is Ben Williams. Roll the tape. So uh, what's up, Ben? How you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. You know, it's it's. I ask, uh, the, I'm not going to say her name because I don't want her to activate, but the robot from Amazon in my house, I ask her what day it is since March 8th so I can keep track of this crazy timeline. And at some point recently, I realized I've been at home in quarantine longer in 2020 than I have not been in quarantine, which was a depressing moment in time to reach. Um, but, you know, just, just trying to keep at it. I'm lucky. I'm happy. I'm healthy. My family's healthy. Um, friends are healthy. And so... I have a job, still have a job, um, and it's more than a lot of people have right now. So just trying to put one foot in front of the other and, and realize, you know, how lucky I am. 
No doubt, man. I mean, that's kind of like what this has been about for me too. Like to, it's the, that weird kind of dichotomy of on one hand, you know, being able to sit back and recognize um, how lucky we are to have the certain gifts that we have to be able to make through and do the things that we do while at the same time also giving space to honor the fact that this shit is fucking hard. Um, And it's kind of kicking my ass and I'm sure it's, you know, I don't know if it's kicking yours, but it's definitely kicking a lot of people's asses. Yeah. Um, I think, I think what you have to do is like, you have to, you have to give yourself space to be able to, to, you know, what people tell you is to grieve the loss of all of the things that are normal in your life. You know, if there was, if there was always a moment where we said we're not allowed to grieve because other people are worse, you know what, there's always someone out there who's starving. There's always someone out there who has it worse. And if we were always going at that tactic, we'd never be allowed to feel bad about anything. It's just not realistic. You know, like totally. you, you need to let yourself say, like, it sucks that I can't see my friends and it sucks that I can't go on a date and I miss my coworkers and I miss going out to restaurants and bars and drag shows and nightclubs and everything else. I miss, mm-hmm. you know, going to the gym. That was a way that I relaxed. I miss the gym yeah. and you're allowed to miss that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, uh, um, the metaphor that I've been using is, uh, um, it's as if someone like came to my house and just took out, took my toolbox and just dumped it out and left me like a hammer and like a mallet basically. And they were like, okay, now, now here's a couch. You should build it. (laughs) (laughs) And like, how are you going to do that? Like you're just sitting there staring at it being like, what am I supposed to do with this? I mean, I, it's, it's, it's crazy that, you know, for, for some people, certainly for me, I don't think I ever thought that there was something that could happen that would take away basically every coping mechanism I have. I mean, all yeah. of the things that I do to relax, whether it's, it's, you know, going to the gym, going out to see friends, going out for drinks, going out to a, a drag show, going out, you know, mm-hmm. and meeting guys, like just walking around in getting lost in a busy city, like literally every coping mechanism I had has gotten wiped off the table. And I'm just supposed to deal with this really stressful time where people are yep. dying without yep. any coping mechanism. It's crazy. I never could have imagined this. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, I, I did kind of imagine it, um, just through catastrophic thinking, like something like this and in a strange, in a strange way, I I imagined worse, you know, I mean, anyone that's like ever gone down the, um, the, uh, like doomsday prepper hole, not that I ever became a doomsday prepper, but I definitely (laughs) watched doomsday preppers on history channel or discovery, whichever one of those, you know, channels it was on, uh, um, a little while ago. And, and, uh, that you know, uh, a virus like a super virus is one of those things that um, that they talk about. You know, in terms of what could happen and what would bring a quote unquote like end of society apocalypse kind of deal or whatever. And when you when you think about like the those kind of scenarios that a lot of those folks sort of think about, like it's actually we've kind of held together surprisingly well. I mean, you know. Uh, my mom sends me the 7 p.m. cheer in New York City. Like, if I've seen yeah. a couple of videos of that. Yeah. And those kind of things, it's like, golly, you know, humans are kind of amazing in terms of what they're able to endure and sort of figure out how to navigate. Uh, yeah, you know, it absolutely could be worse. We were we were talking about the parallels between our current crisis and like The Walking Dead, you know, the TV show about the yeah. zombies that were all started yeah. by a virus. And so, yeah, I mean, we, we could have woken up to, you know, the, this overtaking of the world by zombies and the complete, I mean... You know, people are getting down on CDC and other agencies for not doing enough. But in that show, they completely collapsed and there is no government anymore. So our government may have been a disaster, but it still managed to cling to existence 
It showed, I mean, it definitely showed me the power of a federalist system. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. Oh my God. Thank God yeah. for, you know, Governor Newsom. You know what I mean? I just like I have so much faith in his leadership right now. Um, yeah. And I don't even necessarily have to have faith in Trump's leadership uh, to feel confident that like at least the state government is going to be responsible for this, you know? So, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's uh it's crazy. It's crazy and fascinating and all the layers of just like human study. Why did we, you know, hoard the things that we hoarded in the order that we hoarded them? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the whole like first time ever in history, you know, we're looking at the psychological impact of, um, zoom overload, you know, <laughs> it's always exactly. like really interesting, you know, let alone just, you know, living history and being a part of the 100 year, you know, sort of virus that happens to humanity that we just have to figure out how to fight off. And, um, I don't know. It's fascinating. The one thing I think about is I think if it was reverse in terms of like the age of the people who were dying from this. So if like, you know, the elderly were fine, but kids were really being heavily affected by this, I think it, I think it would be a really, really different situation. Yeah, that's a good point. I I mean, it's, it's, it's sad and it's scary the way that it's affected people, you know, like I, I, I think that if I knew that I would be fine, you know, there's some 36, there's some 36 year olds that have really had a tough go of this. I think that if I knew that I would be fine, for sure, I would be less frightened of it. Um, Mm -hmm. But I, you know, I'm panicked about my parents. I have three friends that lost a parent to this so far, you know, and it happened in the first few weeks of this. And I think about my parents. I mean, I just talked to my mom last night and she said, you know, I'm thinking about, she works part-time now. She retired from being a teacher and she works in a store um up and up until it closed because of all of this but now rhode island's letting you open up stores again and and mm-hmm. she she called me and she said i'm th- i'm thinking about telling them that i don't want to go back to work and i was like absolutely you know like yeah. if if you don't want to go back to work that sounds great if you need money let me know like if you need activities to keep yourself busy i will help you find them but like by all means don't go back to work because it's that idea terrifies yeah yeah. And we have to positive reinforce our parents, you know, totally. <laughs> during this time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know, I know it's not fun for me to be stuck here at home, not doing anything. I know that they miss their oh. friends too and being social. I, I know all that. Mm-hmm. And, and I, you know, statistically have less to worry about than they do. So it's got to be even that yep. much scarier for them. Of course, of course. And then you hit a certain age though, where they just like kind of stop giving a fuck for some reason. I was at, I was at the yeah. grocery store today at Vaughn's and what they did there is that it's like each aisle has its own direction. And for the longest time, everybody was following the rules, but today every single aisle had somebody that was walking a different direction and they were all like 60, 70, 80 year old people. Oh, like, really? Well, yeah. And I was wearing a mask, so I couldn't even give them a disapproving look. Yeah, yeah. That's a cool idea about the aisles, though. I hadn't heard that. That's a good idea. I I mean, it's it's not a great idea that they're not following it, but it's a good idea that they that they tried. It's unreal. I mean, the big stickers on the floor with you know feet pointing in the direction they want you to go with the word "social distance" off on it. You know, please keep your space, and you really just can't miss it. And they were just, it's all it had. They had to be doing it on purpose. They absolutely had. I mean, there's just no other way that you could, that you could do that. And it wasn't one of those things where I was like running into the same people over and over again. That kind of happens. It was like different people in each aisle. I was sort of blown away away by it, but yeah, uh, yeah, kind of crazy, kind of crazy. 
Um, but anyway, so, uh, but you're hanging in there in terms of just, I mean, I'm like the definition of hanging in there. So that's kind of how you feel too, in terms of just like how you're navigating and getting through. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, it's, it's high stress for everyone. Um, Mm -hmm. but what I, what I've always tried to do in periods of high stress is just really break it down and focus on like, what are the actual things I have control over? Like, what can I actually do right now? And, and in this time, it means I, can stay home as much as possible. I can wear a mask when I go out. I can wash my mm-hmm. hands. I can call friends, you know, virtually and, and check on them or or just, you know, have a lighthearted conversation to kind of pass the time and, and have that kind of social connection. But there's a lot of stuff that I can't do anything about. I can't at this moment yeah. do anything about the failure in the federal government. I can't for this right. moment do anything about people who aren't taking this seriously. And so right. you just kind of have to, at least for me, what I have to do is just remind myself that it's that's not my responsibility, nor is there anything that I can do about it. So give yourself a break, you know, like if you're stressing about the idea of, of other people not behaving, of the government failing, of, of whatever it is that's going on, like you, you just, it's not worth beating yourself up over something you can't do anything about. So just let it go. Yeah, a hundred, a uh, hundred thousand percent. Um, I've been marveling at, you know, sort of creativity in, in other people, but also kind of what I've been utilizing to help myself kind of keep track of time and mark and mark time, you know? So like I, I've been for, so like last year, one of the things that I did just for fun was I followed micro holidays. Do you know, you know what those are? No. Uh, so there's like, there's, uh, I mean, there's your basic holidays that everyone knows about, right? So we're recording on a Sunday, tomorrow's Memorial day, national holiday, all this stuff. But there's actually something like 1500 to 2000, uh, micro holidays. These are holidays that are on the books, you know, that people kind of filed for, and then they get recognized. And then, um, and then each day kind of is marked and you can, you can get like an app or calendars to kind of, you know, uh, follow the days. And it's anything from advocacy days to, um, you know, people who just have a particular passion for certain types of things. So like, for example, yesterday was lucky penny day and taffy day. Um, and then today is, um, national aviation maintenance technician day, uh, brother's (laughs) day. Escargot Day, Scavenger Hunt Day, and also Wyoming Day. Um, so oh. it's all kinds of things. I mean, along with Memorial Day, tomorrow is also National Towel Day and Tap Dance, Tap Dance Day and, uh, and Wine Day. So these are things that we can kind of think about. So, um, every work day I've been sending into the folks kind of on, on my side of the office, um, what every, what every day is. And it's anything oh, wow. from like just two to like seven. And yep. it's fun. Like it kind of like it's now it's not just Monday. It's, you know, national talk like a pirate day or something like that. And, um, and you, and it just kind of makes it a little bit more fun. So I like try to use my sense of humor to sort of help. And then the yeah. other thing for me is that having my kids 50, 50 really does sort of demarcate time. There's a yeah. real difference between what it's like to try to, you know, survive just being alone versus what it's like to be in quarantine with my, you know, two children which are two other people, you know, and um, just a different type of feeling. So managing, by the way, the challenging shift when they arrive 
and also the challenging shift when they leave. Like it's challenging both times, you know, yeah, <laughs> like, of course, making that shift, you know, but it's, um, it's definitely interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love that about the holidays though. I mean, I, I hadn't thought about that. And that, now that it's, uh, now that I know that it's Brother's Day, I should probably call my brother at some point. <laughs> Not a bad idea. Yeah. I don't, like, I don't think you, like, I don't think you're forced to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I feel no pressure to eat escargot. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. You know, someone, where someone would I even get it right now? Well, you know, it's funny, actually, that you should say that, where to get escargot. I, I have mostly, I've been trying, one, I'm a terrible cook, so I, I don't really want to even, like, try using the kitchen, and two, I really do feel strongly um, about, you know, to the extent that I'm able, to the extent that I have the resources helping out restaurants and bars and making sure that I can support them, um, you know, as they can't do in, indoor seating. So I've been mostly doing doing takeout and ordering, and I, uh -huh. you, do, you do have a budget, you do have to stay within the margins of things, and so most of the stuff that I get is fairly simple but there's some nights you know if i've had a really rough day or it just feels like i need a reward there are still like really fancy restaurants that are open yeah now you can do you can do delivery from so i got um i got sushi one night from this place that does that whole you know like sit down nine course sushi experience it's, it's evidently yeah, it's evidently a, a hidden restaurant inside of a hotel. It's like a specific hotel room. What? And you go to this hotel room and it's like, surprise, there's this very extravagant sushi restaurant inside. And so I ordered from them and it was like hilariously expensive. And I'm sure I was missing some of the ambiance, not being in a secret <laughs> hotel room, but it was just fun to get like hilariously fancy food delivered. So I'm sure there's somewhere out there that's doing escargot and I, I you should go for it. Give yourself a treat. How did they? How did they transport that food to you? Managing to keep the fancy. Like, did you get a super fancy like meal in like a styrofoam tin? There's no way. What you did know, they give it was, it to you? In? It was a step up over your regular styrofoam, regular plastic. <laughs> um, but it, I would, I would not say it in any way approaches what I'm sure the in in restaurant experience was. So they had like a. They had like a customized square box that was branded with the restaurant's label. It was it was like light cardboard, um, and you opened it up, oh. and there was like a very cute arrangement inside. And so it was. You know, they tried, you know. Okay. But I, okay. I, you know, it's it would have been different. I'm sure they would have had fancy plates, and there would have been cocktail glasses, and I'm sure 100%. very nice table settings, and a view of yeah. the river or something like that. You know, or the city. So a little different, but they tried. That's amazing. And then and then the food was, was it as delicious. Um, it was good. Yeah. Like you can yeah. tell, you know, like if you get, I don't know if you're a sushi guy, but like when you get a really good piece of tuna, like, you know, mm -hmm. it's a really good piece of tuna kind of like melt in your mouth. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and I, I've had that a few times. There was, I got something from, um, I think it was a Gramercy restaurant one day when I was feeling this way and I had like the best burrata ever. I mean, it was like <laughs> extravagant burrata in a little this this was in a regular cardboard box, and it was the nicest thing I've ever gotten in a cardboard box in my life, for sure. You know what's funny? Sushi is uh, one of those foods that I really, really love to make, but don't love to eat. Oh, it's so it's so enjoyable to make. Yeah, it's with great. the rolling ever... and the. I, oh, I've, yeah. I've seen it done. I haven't done it myself. I the the extent oh. of my my cooking. The, the one meal that I've made for myself in quarantine, I tried to make myself oatmeal until I realized I didn't have a microwave in my new apartment. It just doesn't have one. I looked for it. I couldn't find it. Um, and so <laughs> the uh, the hottest source of water in the apartment is the shower. So I made like shower oatmeal. Someone said they do that in prison. <laughs> like 
it's I did something that you do in prison, apparently, uh, except I'm in the West Village in a fucking yuppie, you know? <laughs> <laughs> have you, do you have a dishwasher? I do not. Nope. I, I don't have a dishwasher. Say, a dishwasher. I bet you yeah. can make a really good chicken in a dishwasher. Yeah, I, you know, I've heard of people doing that. I think the key is you don't put the soap in, right? <laughs> That's probably step one. Yeah, step two, don't... you would probably use the soap thing for the spices. Yeah, right? that's a good idea. Even distribution. I like the way you're thinking. <laughs> this is really disgusting. Yeah. Um, let's let's get to let's uh, maybe it's time for us to shift to life's problems. You know, sure. like, <laughs> there are so many. There are so many to choose from. So as I told you, you know, we always start this show with the simple question. Well, it's not such a simple question, but it can be. Just look, where does, where does your story begin? And so let's start there. Where does your story begin? You know, I think the I was trying to think back on and on, on how to categorize it because you know I've been I've been in and out of therapy since I was a little kid. Um, I've certainly had my struggles and highs and lows throughout life. I think you know the the earliest that I can remember it starting is just being different. Um, and huh. when I was a little kid, I didn't really know what that meant. I just knew that I was an other in a group of people, you know, who were relatively similar. I was different in some way. And I didn't really have the words for that, you know, at age six or seven, when I started acting out, um, my acting out got to a point where, you know, I, I remember having, you know, fairly serious conversations with the school. This is a school my parents taught at, which made it that much, you know, harder for everyone. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, you know, my parents were there every day for their for their colleagues and friends, other faculty members to come up and say, like, your kid is, you know, something else. Um and I think as I got older and kind of was in and out of therapy and started to realize more things about myself, it, it just became quickly apparent that um, I was, you know, in some way acting out when I was younger because I was different and didn't understand why. And later I was acting out because I realized why and that's, you know, that I'm that I'm gay. And uh, yeah. I realized that at that that critical time in every kid's life when they want to be the same and not be noticed. And um, you know, be will be at least one of the average kids, if not one of the cool kids, but certainly yeah. be one of the different kids. Um, so do that's you remember? Do you remember what some of the like triggering interactions were that that made you feel particularly different? Like, are you able to like really break down what those specific moments were, or is it more of a general, just like, yeah, no, I just knew, generally speaking, that I was different. There was something different. I think it's just, you know, like I, it's, there's a lot of kind of like gendering going on when, when you're dealing in this, in this mm -hmm. world. And I think for me, that's kind of how it started is, you know, like I remember, I love my parents and I, and I almost hate saying this out, out loud because they are the most supportive and they always have been. But I do remember um, being a very, very little kid and I was, uh, you know, playing swings. I was on the swing set with, a, with a bunch of the girls and I remember, um, you know, my dad saying at one point, like, do you, do you want to go, you know, play sports with the boys? Um, and yeah. he didn't say it, he didn't say it in a bad way, but I remember him saying it. And I remember thinking as a result, like, oh, am I supposed to be doing that? Cause I'd like doing this, but if I'm supposed to be doing that, you know, like, what's that about? And, and that only kind of went on, you know, like even, even well before I realized I was gay, well before I told people that I was gay, my closest friends were women, were girls. Um, right. You know, the the girl, the people I invited over to my house when I was little were often girls. I think the first person I remember inviting over to my house was a girl. Um, some of the 
some of the dearest friends that I've had throughout my life that I met at that point um, were girls are now women. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, the subjects that you're interested in, there was some stuff that was like typically masculine that I did. I did like to play in the woods, you know, mm -hmm. I did like to build forts and, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. I did like um, computers and I grew up and learned how to build computers. That's kind of like stereotyped as masculine, yeah. but but a yeah. lot of the rest of the activities were were with women. And I think that that was the first sign that something was up. And then, you know, of course, you get to the point where you realize what it is and you know something. Right. right. So when was that for you? I think the earliest that I can really remember thinking like I like boys was probably, I want to say like 10, 11, probably. Um you know, it was, it was the dawn of the internet. I was born in 83 and mm -hmm. we got, we got AOL uh, America online in 1994. So that would have put me at 11. So yeah. I think it was having the capacity to go out and read things and see that, you know, there were, you know, there were guys on the internet and I found them attractive. Um, mm -hmm. I think it was seeing other boys starting to develop feelings for girls and not really getting that. Like, you know, there was the class trips that we went on in sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. And as each grade went up, you know, you got progressively more into games, you know, when the teachers all went to bed and you snuck away games of truth and dare and spin the bottle and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, guys were excited about that. Guys were talking about what girls they thought were hot. And I knew how to cover, but I wasn't feeling those things you know i just right. i just wasn't having i could yeah i can tell what girl is the hot girl in class i know how to do that um i still know how to do that you know it's like let's let's all be real everyone knows when someone's attractive i don't yeah. care what sexuality you are like you can be the straightest guy out there and you still know when a guy's hot like of course yeah of course you know? like you do um of course. and so yeah i think i think it was around that age group that i realized it but it was very easy to hide at that time um, and so we were at a tiny little private school that was quite conservative in terms of its values. Did I have to really work hard to pass when we were doing things like kissing on the cheek in spin the bottle? No, I could pass, you know, I could get right. through that. Right. Right. But as soon as it starts to get a bit more serious, that's when. <laughs> that's yeah, when. exactly. You know, like I, I think I didn't realize I that school for me that my parents taught it was kindergarten through ninth grade. So I made it all the way through Ooh. age 14 through ninth grade without much of an issue. You know, like I didn't mind holding hands with girls. I didn't mind pretending like I like girls. That wasn't hard. And the most that I ever saw in my time there was people kissing. I don't think that there was anything there was anything going on below the belt at that point. It was right. It was a secret, right. and I have not, in twenty years since then, ever heard otherwise. So I think it was just a very innocent time. Um, and then I graduated from that school at fourteen and transitioned to a school for high school. And all of a sudden, you know, here are kids dating and they're having sex, and this is way like more not, serious. Yeah, yeah, it's way more way serious, more. and it's way harder to pass. Um, you know, I, it was a whole new group of kids that didn't have my 10 years of studied history and trying to act a certain way and getting away with it. You know, it was a whole new group of kids. Um, it was very different. It became very hard to pass. And so I kind of nosedived at that point from being 
relatively happy and okay with myself to within just the span of having graduated that May, having started at a new school in September, I nosedived um, into depression, um, into misery, just because it became impossible to cover this up anymore. You couldn't cover it anymore. Now, had you had like something painful happen before you transitioned to high school? In other words, like, was there ever like a crush on a boy in your class that you couldn't, you know, um, act on or say anything about or whatever? Like, was there anything along those lines or really, really like you were, you were just kind of really able to coast along and then suddenly just the, the pretending had to be too real because the actions were too serious. I think, you know, I'm, I was pretty lucky. I skated along. I, I mean, lucky is relative. I'm saying lucky in that I didn't have to deal with this earlier. In some ways, it would have been better if I had to deal with it earlier than later. But, um, you know, I, I, I was so much in denial. I, I remember vividly finding something on the Internet one day in that time frame when I was still in school. So age, age 14 or under, I found something somewhere that said sometimes when guys have feelings for other guys, it's just a phase. And I clung to that. I mean, that was like, that was, that was such a free pass. That was such an absolution to know that like, oh yeah, like I feel this way. It's kind of weird. No one else is like this, but it's just temporary. And so I was able to just kind of, you know, move with that. Like, I'm not going to have to worry about that. I, I'm not even going to acknowledge that my feelings for guys are real. I don't, I don't, I think I knew what guys in my class were attractive. Um, you know, I remember it's embarrassing to say that loud. I remember a couple of times like trying to look up people's gym shorts when we were all sitting out in the soccer fields. Um, like I, I remember, I remember those moments, but I think it was kind of like, it always came back to this is not real. This is temporary. Don't even focus or worry about it. And it just, it became clear after I left that school and moved on and things didn't change that I was not going to change. Gosh. Yeah. So you were kind of just waiting to like snap back or something like that or snap over. And yeah. um, obviously it wasn't going to come, you know? Yeah. 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 It just never, I never kind of got that finality of it just being a phase. I kept waiting for it to, to end. Uh, and I kept waiting to to like girls, and I really tried. I mean, there was the, the the prettiest girl in my my class is this girl named Tiffany, and it's funny that you know we ended up striking up a really close friendship of the sort that later in life I've realized I have with women in part because I'm gay. We we got so close, and I think I misinterpreted that for like, yeah, I think that she likes me. Like we're we're really talking, we're really like on the same page, and like I don't have remotely any physical attraction to her, even though I know she's attractive, but we've got this like great conversation thing going. So like, yeah, I think I'm getting the hang of it. And it just, you know, (laughs) crashed and burned at some point, realizing that was not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, Okay. So then you get to college and then just nosedive. Um, High school. High school. I mean, high school and then just nosedive. So what was that? Yeah. You know, I think it was, I think it was a lot of things. Um, I, I switched schools. Like I said, it's an, an odd thing that my prior school went up to age um, 14. And so I missed freshman year at the new school that I went to. And the new school that I went to was, um, was pre-K all the way up through senior year of high school. So mm-hmm. the kids that I was joining in 10th grade were either if they were new, they were probably new as freshmen. So they'd been there for a year that I hadn't been. 
And some right. of them had been there for decades, you know, right. at least since they were babies. Right. Um, so I was coming into an environment, I think there were only three kids that were new when I started in 10th grade um, at that school. And none of my friends from my prior school went. Um, I also, I had a, I had a pretty rough ending to that school that I went to for, for 10 years. So um, we had a, so it's a long story that I'll, that I'll breeze over quickly, but it's basically like, I, I was relatively sure that I had good friends from this 10 years that I spent from, from kindergarten through ninth grade, not a yeah. ton of friends, but some good friends. Um, I'd, I'd gotten up to a position of leadership. I was the, the class president. Um, I was on the responsibility for planning our graduation dance. They wanted it to be a blowout. So I worked really hard on planning it. They wanted this, um, you know, at the time it was a big deal to have a video screen for showing music videos. It was normally just music that you'd be listening to, but they wanted a video screen. So I found a way to do that. It was contingent on, um, we couldn't afford with the money that we had raised to do the whole thing, you know, right. So the, the DJ made us a deal and said, if you help me set up and break down the equipment, then I'll cut you a deal. And right. so I, I took this to the student body and they said, sure. So the sixth, seventh and eighth graders, along with the ninth graders who were invited to this dance at the very end of our time together, volunteered to do the setup. Um, yeah. And the thing was the tradition for this graduation dance was uh, sixth, seventh, and eighth grades had to leave an hour early, and the last hour was reserved for the graduating class. So all take down was about to be you guys. Exactly. Yeah. And so I said, I said to these guys, I said, you know, it's going to be just us for the last hour, and then we're all going to have to, um, you know, break down all of this stuff. Um, and they said, yeah, we want it. We want the video DJ. That's what we want. So dance goes great. DJ is great. Everything's going well. It's feeling like a really meaningful capstone to my 10 years at this school and having gone to graduation earlier in the day and having hung out with my friends all night at, at dinner and then this dance and, and you know, it, end, it ends and the parents start streaming in and it's, it's time to, you know, help break down all the equipment. Um, and all the kids left every single oh one. Um, the girls all went to one girl's house for a party that she was holding for them. And the boys all went to one boy's house that, um, for a party that he was hosting for them. And I was the only one that didn't get invited. <gasps> and so I was the only one at the end of all of this that I had planned for all of them to clean up the mess. Holy um, shit. Yeah, so that fucked me up pretty good. <laughs> you you had that experience, and then you were transitioning to high school. Exactly. That's, so that's you know, it was, insane. Yeah, it was like I thought. You know, I'd spent ten years with these people, with most of these people. Some came and went, but ten years with a lot of these people, and I thought that they were my friends. And then on our final night together, I found out that I was alone. And that's it was you know, it was me and me and my dad helping the DJ clean up as everyone else went to their parties. Um, and, oh you know, I remember just going home. My parents were beside themselves. I mean, they can you imagine parents witnessing their child going through that? I can't imagine what that was like for them. I know it's horrible for me. Heartbreaking. heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. So yeah. it was like it was leaving people behind who I thought were my friends, but then realizing they weren't my friends. And then it was starting at a new school without 
even those people who I realized weren't my friends. So I already felt alone. And then I started at this other school where everyone already kind of knew each other and I was the new kid. Um, it was compounded by uh, my dad um, got an offer, an opportunity as a teacher, and he got an opportunity yeah. to be away from us for six months um, to do this incredible he's a geography teacher, did this incredible geography-based education program. The early days of the internet, they were kind of doing trips around the world or around the U.S. and, and broadcasting stories that kids could use uh, or teachers oh, wow. could use in their curriculum. So yeah. it was, it was yes, all, losing all my friends, realizing I never had them in the beginning, beginning starting at a brand new school. Um, my dad was gone for six months. My grandmother, who I was very close to, was in quite poor health. And then, as we talked about a little bit earlier, coming, you know, being really forced to come to terms with my sexuality, not being able to hide it, seeing people in grown-up relationships and realizing that I did not have the tools to pass in that kind of environment like I was able to pass in my other school. And so everything just exploded. That's a perfect storm of everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just it was absolutely everything. Yeah. You know, I mean, all that needed to happen besides that is just for your dog to pass away. You I know. know. I mean, you know, it you was know. everything that could have gone wrong kind of hit in that few month period. Yeah. God. Um, so of course you got depressed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know. what else was there to do? Like that was I, like a hundred percent the right reaction. <laughs> yeah. I think I didn't, I think I didn't again have the, the words to explain how I was feeling or know exactly what to say or know how to recognize it. But what I, what I vividly remember is, I would wake up each day, my high school that I went to, the new school that I went to after I was 14 was about a 45 minute drive away. Um, yeah. And what I remember is I could, I would get up in the morning, I was not happy, but I would go through the motions and I would, you know, wake up and I'd take a shower and I'd get all, get up all my things together. My mom um, would make me a, a bagel, cream cheese and put it in a tin foil. Um, and then we would head out to go and catch the bus and I would make it to school um, and I would make it to, you know, like putting my books away. And then there was just this thing that I had been fighting all morning that I realized needed to get out, which was just I, I would run each day to the library. Uh, it was a tower of a building, a three floor kind of um, circular tower. I would go all the way up to the third floor and go into the boys room. There was no one there at that hour. And I'd go into the stall and I would just sit in the corner of the stall by myself and just sob hysterically. And I had to do that. Like it, I could feel it coming all morning. I could get to a point where I could get there. And then it just all came out. And then I would pick myself back up after like a half an hour and I'd clean myself up and then I could mostly get through the day but it was every morning like clockwork that happened that's what happened every single morning and how long did that last oh gosh month, months maybe that whole first year it just was like this it, i didn't know where it was coming from i didn't know why it was happening but it was like it's like it's kind of like analogous to like the feeling you know when you're going to grow up like you know it's going to yeah. happen and yeah. you lie you lie in bed and you roll over and maybe you can make it go away maybe you can make it away and it's just going to happen whether you want to or not it was like that with the yeah. tears i just yeah. had to go and just like release that mm -hmm. in that moment each morning like eight o'clock in the morning and then i could mostly make it through the day that's i mean that's the definition of just white knuckling it yeah you know that's a hundred percent the definition of that where you're really just holding on um yeah. do you look back on that now um, I, had, I mean, 
I want to keep going with the story, but there's also so much perspective gained since then, you know, um, like your, your story about what happened, you know, ending your sort of initial school experience there, um, in ninth grade is, is so unbelievably painful and fascinatingly symbolic at the same time in terms of like, you felt like an outsider, you weren't invited to the boy party or the girl party. (laughs) That's, that's unbelievable. Um, when I, when I graduated high school, my last week in high school, I caught this really gnarly case of conjunctivitis um, um, and had like really bad pink eye. This is nothing like your story, but it's symbolic in a, in a way that's kind of similar. Um, yeah. And uh, I had to take my final exams, yeah. but I wasn't allowed in the school. And so oh, what, what they did was I was met at the front door of the school by two guards who then walked me into like the back room of the nurse's office they had put a plastic sheet over the door and I took my final exams in that setting. And I remember sitting there thinking like, well, this is perfect. (laughs) Just like, this doesn't like perfectly symbolize what high school has been all about, you know, Um, just like exactly what it is. Like it, it was like perfect in that way. So I'm wondering, but I look back on it now and it, for me now, it's like, if I was a stand up comedian, I would use it as a bit. You know, like yeah. I, I've, I've been able to build that kind of perspective, but it's so painful. Um, so I wonder, as you like look back on that time, have you been able to cast it in a way of just like you were a 14 year old badass who was like holding it together <laughs> for your mother just long enough to get to the school bathroom and let out whatever tears needed to get out and then just go and make it through the day? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, do you look at it that kind of way or or is I, it sort of just pain? I look at it as the first indication of something that I'm only still just now kind of coming to terms with, which is um, having a really high tolerance for stress and pain and mm-hmm. uh, a not very well developed ability to ask for help and feeling like I needed to do it on my own and needing needing to kind of carry the weight on what I was going through. That has been... Yeah that has been my whole life, you know, like what, what, regardless of what situation I've gotten, there are periods of time where I've endured horrible situations where I either didn't know, or I did know that there was an opportunity to get help, but I felt like I had to do it on my own and I managed to do it, but um, with consequences, you know, like with really serious consequences, there are, there are any number of situations in my life where it would have been so much better if I just asked for help. And most of the time that help was easily available. And instead Mm -hmm. I just felt like I had to do it on my own and it, it was, it's been damaging. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that, and, and, uh, you know, asking for help is one of those things that's just, it's so counterintuitive in terms of like what it actually is. Cause it's a strong thing to do, but it yeah. feels like a weak thing when you're doing it. And, yeah. you know, one of the biggest parts of it is that, you know, at least for me, like the depression came up as a coping mechanism when I wasn't actively coping on my own. Mm-hmm. So like the part of my brain that I wasn't controlling was like, you know, all right, we got it. And yeah. it doesn't want to ask for help like at all. You know, so like being able to get to that point, at least for me, it had to be really dark where I was like, oh, fuck, I'm going to die and I need to ask for help. And that was like really where it had to be in order for me to in order for me to get there. So, 
Yeah, I was that, the same yeah. way. I mean, I there was there was a point that year. So I had seen I had seen a um, social worker when I was a little kid um, okay. for for various behavioral issues. But I want to say that that was maybe that was maybe like second, third grades, intermittently, mm-hmm. maybe through like fifth, sixth grades. But I don't think I was seeing her um, at the end of that school. I don't think I was seeing her at like twelve, thirteen, fourteen. Um, but you know, I got, I got to the point where that first year things were really bad. And I do remember asking if I could go back and see her. Um, it was, it was an inconvenient trek to see her. She used to be pretty close to, um, to where my parents lived, but she had relocated, um, to the other, kind of the other side of Connecticut. And I knew that it would be, I just liked her and I trusted her. Um, and I felt like, I knew I got to a point where I knew deep down that I was in a really bad place. I think that finally clicked um, that I was just in terrible shape and needed to get help. So I finally did. Um, but it's, I, I regret, you know, in with the hindsight that I have now that I didn't ask sooner because there were so many mornings that I spent in that bathroom um, where I could have, you know, been talking to her. I could have been getting helped by her and I just felt like I had to just get through it on my own. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. How, how, I mean, if you don't mind me asking, how dark did it get beyond the tears in the classroom? Was there other, were there other ways that it manifested? Yeah, I think I, you know, as I started to realize what this was about and, and it came into focus, I mean, despite all of the stress, I I don't remember focusing too much on that time about, you know, all of my friends having abandoned me. I don't, I don't remember focusing too much on my dad being gone or my grandmother getting sick. All those, those, those were all hard things. It was mostly about my, my sexuality and it was specifically about, um, it was specifically the thing that I remember just hysterically crying over and being so upset over is it just was a time period. I mean, this was, this was the late nineties. Um, this was a time period where there was not a lot of information and positive examples of, um, gay couples of, of yeah. families, you know, marriage right. was not even something that was being thought about. This was right. well before civil unions were in anyone's mind. Right. Um, there was there was laws against adoption. Um, there was laws, you know, right up until I was in college, there were laws criminalizing consensual same-sex activity. Yeah. Um, and so what I remember being so upset about is this idea that I would have, if I did all the right things, the same thing that I had growing up. I would have a, a spouse and I would have children. My, my mom and dad were had a very successful marriage and had two kids. Um, and that's just what I had always thought was the deal. Like I would go to grade school, I'd go to high school, I'd go to college, I'd graduate college, I would meet someone, I would marry them, and I would have two kids. Um, And what was so difficult to grasp is thinking that I wouldn't have that and that I would be alone, which probably harkened back to, you know, my friends abandoning me in grade school, not helping. Um, And so it did get really dark. I mean, I I remember just being consumed by the idea that I would be alone forever and it got very, very grim. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I certainly thought about taking my own life. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't attempt it, but I thought about it. Um, mm-hmm. I thought that if my parents ever found out, which in retrospect seems crazy because they are the most liberal and supportive people. But in, at the time, uh, you know, I, I knew kids. I'd, I'd found my way into some chat rooms online. I had, I had talked and I, I actually came out first online to 
relative strangers. Yeah. Um, and I had heard stories about, you know, this kid got sent away to camp to change him. And this kid got kicked out of his house. And even yeah. parents that seemed like they were okay. I had met people who said their parents seemed like they were okay. But then when, when they told them that they were gay, the parents threw them out or something like that. And so I, yeah. I just, I remember thinking about, I remember getting really tough, relatively far along in the idea of what could I do to make money if I ran away? If I ran away, is there a way I could support myself? Where would I run away? How would I get there? Where would I live? Um, what would I do if my parents tried to get me? You know, I got, I got pretty far along in the runaway plan. Um, so it was, it was bad. It was a bad place. That's incredible. And we're not sort of far enough along at that time in, you know, the narrative of how people are talking in public. We're not far enough along really in the AIDS crisis. I'm trying to remember like when Pedro came along and started to normalize things for people, you know what I mean? Like it just hadn't like really entered the, you know, the mindset of people there. And so you might've even been reading off of just those, you know, unconscious things that parents say to their kids that like, you know, have that shape, but how interesting. I mean, it almost sounds like you were going through, what is it? The five steps of mourning only instead of mourning a person, you were mourning this like kind of ideal sort of dream of what a life is supposed to look like. That's fed to you since you were little. And, and now you're realizing that it's not for you and you have to say goodbye to it. Yeah. I mean, it was just, I think that it probably, it was probably harder in some ways. I mean, I, I've met kids, you know, I, I, I know in retrospect how lucky I was to grow up where I grew up. I've met kids that were subjected to horrific abuse who were born in oh, different God. parts of the country. Yeah. Um, but at the time, nevertheless, you know, like talking about still allowing yourself to feel things and it being relative. I, I, I just don't remember that many positive examples. You know, it was, it was before there was visibility. Um, you know, it was, it was post HIV in a number of ways. Like we had retroviral drugs at that point, but it wasn't so far removed that that wasn't a fear. Um, and, you know, I, I remember one of the most vivid memories I have is, it's Matthew Shepard. Um, yes. you know, I, I, there are two things about that that will be, just completely burned into my mind for all time. I specifically remember reading the article, um, you know, and this is graphic. Um, I remember reading the article describing the police who found him and they said that he was, he was almost unrecognizable, but that his tears had cut a path through his face from where the blood and the dirt was. I remember, I just remember that moment vividly. And I also remember, because we had the internet at that point, trying to read more about what happens and discovering um, the Westboro Baptist Church and discovering Mm -hmm. Mm godhatesfags.com. And and they had, uh, you know, this is primitive internet, but they still had the ability to do some graphics and some sound effects. And they had a picture of Matthew Shepard burning in hell and screaming. Jesus. And I remember, I just remember that so clearly. And you're looking at this thing and you're just thinking like, this is, I am the same as this person. That's like right. I am the same as this person who was viciously attacked and killed. I am the same as this person that this church says it's going to burn in hell. And then you just don't have a lot of positive stuff. So oh, that's right. It was a, it's not like it's ever going to be easy for kids to be different. I'm sure today there are kids out there, even in the most liberal places who just realize like I did that they're different and that's always going to be hard. 
because that's just the nature of our society is you just don't want to be different. Um, but I have to hope that it has gotten easier just because there's so much more visibility these days. You know what's, you know what's interesting? It's a double-edged sword I found in the small little, like tiny, tiny little minuscule sliver of, you know, like experiences that I've seen with that in terms of having kids on the one hand, um, you know, just visiting my girl's school, I definitely am horrified to report to you that I cannot believe that I heard like modern day sixth graders use the F word. Um, I I can't believe it. Yeah. I can't believe it. I was like, what year is this? I was like, kids are still saying that in school. And I spoke to my daughters about it and they're like, yeah, the boys sometimes still say it. Um, and that knocked, that knocked my socks off. And this is not, I mean, I'm talking, I'm in San Diego and this is a, like a school where most of the kids are being raised by very liberal parents. Um, and so, I mean, really just blew me away. On the other hand, what's really interesting is that they have at their fingertips now, the ability to really dive into the like specifics of what their sexuality is. Um, to the point where like, it's kind of hard for me to keep up, you know, like I grew up with the mindset of just a one line spectrum, you know, there's gay on one side and straight on the other and everyone's sort of somewhere in the middle. And now I'm like, okay, no, it's like a color spectrum. (laughs) There's, uh, polyamorous, there's monogamous, there's, um, you know, uh, um, pansexual, um, and then panromantic asexual and all these different potential combinations. So you have to like, really be up on, on how your kids are identifying because totally. they're all like, they've got these really interesting specifics. So on one hand, there's bad news, but on the other hand, there's some kind of good news in there too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's I mean, I think the kids, kids will always, like I said, it's hard, it's hard to be different. I think that will be a universal. It's always hard to be different. There's always going to be kids that are mean, you know, it's mm-hmm. just, it's, that's part of how you cope with being, uh, you know, self-conscious, you lash out and you find a word, you hear a word and you know that that carries damage if you use it and you're going to yeah. use it, you know, yeah. it's going to be the way it's going to be what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and ideally, you know, when you're a parent or a teacher, you catch a kid using a word in that way or, you know, expressing in that way. And then you, you know, sort of try to correct it as quickly as possible and as strong as possible because Absolutely. they're all interacting with these words online now, but they're not getting the guidance necessarily. So right. it's a, right. it's a really interesting challenge, but yes. gosh, man. So, okay. So that was your ninth, that was, that was your ninth grade year basically was uh, pretty much that, that full experience. What happened then? I mean, did it get deeper and darker or did you manage to kind of find a, a way to sort of climb out of it a little bit there. You know, I, I managed to find a way to climb out of it. And I'm, I'm still not sure. I've thought about this a lot over the years. I'm still not sure I can point to one particular moment. Um, but I think it just, it had to do with being in a very supportive community. The school that I was going to was very artsy, you know, Providence, Rhode Island, former women's boarding school, gone co-ed day school, but still very much carried that legacy of, they had a full gallery, they had a studio arts program. Um, (laughs) So I think it was, I think it was just starting to see things that, you know, made me feel a little bit more comfortable and having a supportive group of people around me. You know, my, my parents were always supportive. I remember, um, I remember my mom saying once or twice, just kind of out loud, almost just 
apropos of nothing, she'd say like, you know, did I ever tell you that uh, my my roommate Mary in college was bisexual? Did you know that? You know, <laughs> she just, just would like happen, you know, happen to drop that out there, and I go, yeah, mom, you told me, I know Mary, you know, um, and it was, uh, you know, it was us us reading things and learning things in school where it wasn't it wasn't as straightforward as like a sex ed class with a chapter on on homosexuality like that that never happened during my age group um but it would be talking about cultural developments i mean this was the late 90s and the early 2000s um yeah. you know this was this was a, a time where um, if HIV was ending, the discussion on don't ask, don't tell was very much ramping up. Um, mm -hmm. And so there were there were little aspects that made things brighter. So talking to that counselor was certainly part of it. So when I finally kind of broke down and said I wanted to go back and talk to her, we never actually talked about that subject. We never huh. we never talked about it, but we danced around it any number of times. Um, and I think we talked about the things that I was feeling and, you know, and I'm sure she knew exactly what she was doing. I, I bet if I asked her today, she'd say like, of course I knew that what you were going through is your sexuality, but I knew that you weren't comfortable in talking about it and I wasn't going to press you into telling me. Is that um, how but, your parents felt? Yeah. They never pressed me. I told them, you know, I, I didn't know if they knew or not, but they never pressed me on it. Um, and Afterwards, you know, when we've talked, they said that they certainly suspected, um, but that huh. they weren't they weren't going to ask me. And so it was, yeah. yeah, I was talking to my therapist, having supportive teachers. I remember, you know, like th that feeling of urgency to go cry that I experienced in the morning in high school. That feeling would kind of other points of the day sometimes like crash over me in waves. I just I, it wouldn't be triggered by anything. It just would happen. Mm -hmm. Um, but there were two particular teachers, my, my art teacher and my English teacher, um, who, when I was in their class, that was safe for whatever reason. Um, huh. art, art teacher was Leah, English teacher was Brett. And there was just something about these two women that when I was in their class, I felt safe and felt okay with them. And, um, huh. you know, later, later in life, I ended up, the first person I came out to was, was, um, Brett, my English teacher. Um, huh. And I think there's just, they just made me feel comfortable and safe. Um, and so it did, it got better over time. I wish, I wish there was something I could point back to and said like, that's the moment it clicked, but it just got to the point where I think I realized this is going to be okay. Whether or not you meet someone is going to be okay. You don't have to fit into one specific mold of a family, but you are where you are and you are what you are and, and you just kind of have to deal with this. And so I started to be able to, and it took lots of baby steps um, to get from there to here. But I did get to a point where I wasn't going in the bathroom every morning and crying. I was able to kind of move forward. Yeah. There's a certain amount of, I mean, I have always felt and it's, I wonder how you would kind of react to this, but I've always had the feeling that when my friends who are gay, who are identify sort of differently in terms of their gender identity or sexual identity, there's almost always a maturity to them that's beyond their years. It's harder to notice now as an adult, because like, ideally, we've all experienced some stuff. So <laughs> we're more in even playing fields, but I did always feel younger like when I was younger that, yeah, there's like a level of maturity here and it comes from a certain type of like real struggle with identity. 
um, yeah. that uh, unfortunately, you know, throughout pretty much all of human history, actually all of human history, everyone who's had a different gender or sexual identity has had to struggle with. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you do have to grow up a lot sooner, you know, like even if you have the most supportive household, like I, you know, like I did, um, mm-hmm. I still went through that whole period of time where I was thinking about running away and how to do it, you know, like normal, normal kids are not afraid of their parents throwing them out of the house and thinking about ways to fend for themselves and provide for themselves in order to make rent, you know, at right. 16. Normal kids That's aren't right. thinking about that if they're in, you know, relatively right. okay households. That's right. So you have yeah. to, you have to do that. You have to deal with that stress. And I was thinking the other day, you know, encountering the stress of life right now in this moment, you know, of, mm-hmm. of being isolated, of having a really hard job of, you know, feeling like I'm never going to be able to meet a guy in the middle of this pandemic, dealing with all the stress I have here, I talked about how, you know, some skills that I probably learned during that time frame of being 16 of handling enormous amounts of stress on my own have probably prepared me, uh, had me grow up earlier and prepared me to deal with stress later. And that's good and bad, you know, like it's, it's good to be able to deal with stress. It's bad to go back to the same compartmentalizing ideas of I can do this on my own that I learned at that time. Yeah. You know, I, there were, yeah. there were good and bad parts that come with that. Yeah. How nice to, you know, what it would, how nice would it be to be able to look back and have memories that, you know, are just of you really extending your childhood. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, doing sort of things like that. And, you know, you, you just happen to have these other experiences. That was actually going to be my next question. I was curious sort of how this experience then followed you. I mean, um, you know, found some great peace in high school. It sounds like through some nice connections. Did you start dating in high school? Did that happen? It didn't happen in terms of like going all the way to boyfriend territory, but it's, you know, it's funny that we should talk about this. I was just, uh, I moved, moved apartments um, a couple months ago and I just finally got all of the book bookshelves that I want to put in. Um, uh-huh. And on one of these days, you know, when we have all of this, all of this time on our hands, I was uh, rearranging the bookshelves and saw <laughs> a notebook stuffed away um, and pulled it out. And it was a diary that I kept when I was a teenager. And, oh my god <laughs> yeah and i don't think that i have looked at it since then and i flipped through a couple of the pages and the pages i landed on was uh, a cringeworthy description of the evening when i had my first kiss with a guy um you know it was so awkwardly written and so awkward to read this writing that i put down but it's also like so pure so genuine <laughs> like um you know and it was I was, um, I was 16 at that point, um, and I, you know, completely fell head over heels for this guy. Um, we, yeah. didn't, we didn't end up dating, but I did think about taking him to prom. I did want to date him. Um, he, was the, he was the first guy I kissed. He was the first guy I drank with. He was the first guy I smoked pot with. Um, yeah. He was the first guy I went to a gay club with. He told me how to sneak into a gay club in Providence, and we went oh together. Um, at you know, Providence is a funny place. Like at that time period, I don't know. I don't know if it's the same way, but at that time period, if you dressed up and you had money, no one carded you. So uh, getting into a gay bar was actually not that hard. We were going to bars up and down Thayer Street next to Brown at sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. 
you know, and just acting the part and dropping money and having martinis. It was a weird city. Jeez, Louise. Yeah, yeah I, <laughs> I, I know, I know Providence pretty well. And what's funny about Providence is because I've been there a bunch of times and, and spent like a few days there, like vacationing, et cetera. It's a really beautiful town. It's yeah. also probably the nation's most corrupt city. Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. So, yeah. And so, I mean, you can so, see it with those bars. Like we, yeah. you could go into any of the bars, but if you caused a problem, you were banned from all of them because, you know, <laughs> the mob was running them. The mob was running the whole show. They, they didn't care if you were 17, if you spent money, but if nope. you caused problems, you're done. You're yep. dead everywhere. The amount of skinny ties and crooked noses in Providence <laughs> is something special. <laughs> I know. I mean, it was it was wild. I I was there at the time when they were selling uh, Save Buddy T-shirts, where Buddy was Buddy Cianci, the uh, two-time mayor of Providence, who went to jail <laughs> twice. He was the mayor, and then he almost killed someone for sleeping with his wife, and he went to jail. And then he was the mayor and then got indicted in a massive corruption scandal, Plunderdome, for, for you know, uh, embezzling yep. funds, went to yep. jail again. I, you know, he almost went, he almost became mayor a third time. It was ridiculous because people loved him. He, he yep. took a city that was racked with street crime, with violence. And that's what the mob does is, you know, if you're if you're causing trouble for the mob, they're just going to kill you. And so South right. Providence got cleaned up. Downtown Providence got Providence Place Mall. They got this uh-huh. water fire thing. which a was fire walk. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. All of a sudden it was very safe and it's because the mob controlled everything. And yep. that's what we that's what we were told, at least. And, you know, it worked out well for for teenagers that wanted to go out and drink because no one cared. Sure did. <laughs> sure did. Yeah, that yeah. town is that town is nutso, man. That, that town is. is really, really crazy. Yeah, um, goodness gracious. So uh, so that's so romantic, though. That guy. Did you stay in touch with him by any chance? I you know, we I didn't. I didn't. We We stayed in touch, I would say, through. Gosh, maybe the first couple of years of, of college. Um, yeah. He was he was the childhood friend of a girl, now woman, that I was very, very close with in high school. So I would hang out with her a good bit and he would come over from time to time. And I think I think the reason that I ended up liking him so much is that there was in in my class in high school, there were about sixty kids and there was one guy who even even before I came out, right when I started school, was out and openly gay. Huh. And I think part of the struggle for me was he was so different than me. I mean, he yeah. was he was very academically inclined, very well read, you know, such an academic, um, in an incredible knowledge that I at this point, you know, can certainly respect an enormous amount of, of music, of art, of culture, of literature. I mean, he, he had such a command of, of, you know, like art history at, you know, age 16, 17, 18. God. But I looked at him and he was my example and I, for being gay. And right. I was like, I, I don't know those things. I don't, you know, he's in the studio art program. I don't know anything about that. I can't even fucking draw a stick figure. <laughs> and right. I, I read, but I was like, I read fantasy books and I read, you know, nonfiction. I'm not reading, you know, these literary works. Um, and so the guy I ended up kissing, his name was Corey. Corey yeah. was much more like me. Like he was right. someone, he liked 
to laugh. He liked to joke. He liked to go out. He liked to have fun. He liked to dance. Um, he liked to do things that were kind of dangerous. He liked to be a bad boy. And I identified much more with that. So I think when I saw that, I was like, oh, like you're the kind of gay that I'm like. I, <laughs> I, I want to spend more time with you. You know, that's, that's who I identify with. And it's, it's no shade to the other guy, Jeremy. I mean, he, he's now, he's a, he's a professor of law. He's so smart and we're friends now. And there yeah. are any number of ways that he helped me you know, come out and helps me be who I ended up being. But yeah. at the time in the beginning, yeah, it was hard to, to see him and have him be the example. He was like the only one for you that you yeah. like sort of knew in that space. He was the only one until I met this guy, Corey. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, there's this whole other world. Like, yeah, let's go behind the Ben and Jerry's and smoke cigarettes. Like, yes. That's what I want to do. Like, that's what I want to do. I don't want to talk. I don't want to talk about, you know, uh, God, like poetry or philosophy. Like, let's, let's, you know, sneak out in the middle of the day and smoke cigarettes behind the Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> oh, my God. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I found out with uh, the, the same thing happens now, by the way. You know, like, like I found with online dating, like, I'll, I'll like, you know, come across like a profile and you're like, well, this is a very attractive person. And then it's like they're skydiving. And I'm like, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Left oh, totally. to the swipe on that one. You know? Oh, like, yeah. 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 So, even, you know, that, that's really funny. But the difference is, is that like, it's, and if you're in a school with 60 students and you're at percentage in terms of like 10% of the students should be gay, right? Like, in terms of what it's supposed to be. Well, most of them are not out because it's whatever, but it's just not going to be as many options. And yeah. it's hard to sort of find your way to someone who's like a somewhat like, you know, reasonable match, but uh, yeah. what an interesting. And, and it's funny. Yeah. You should say that too, about the statistics because Jeremy and I were the only guys in our class. I'm 99% certain. And yeah, I, I think I'm completely right about this. All the way till graduation, we were the only two. So wow. Jeremy came out first. I don't remember when he came out, but it was before I got to the school. And then I yeah. came out um, when I was 16 in 1999. And we were the only two that came out. And in the years that followed, lots of other people did. And it like blows my <laughs> mind sometimes. Like, because I, it's, it's hard. Again, you don't have any examples. I didn't know anyone who'd done this. I didn't know if there was a rule book or something, but I, right. so you start to think that your experience is the common one. Like Jer right. Jeremy was out. So I felt like maybe I was a little late to the party, but I came out, but it was inconceivable to me that someone would be able to get through high school without being forced to come out. I mean, I was forced. Someone yeah. didn't tell on me, but I was, I felt in every way that I was ripped out of that closet just by the forces of society and the pressures of high school. There was God. no way I could have not come out. I just had to, it was, it yeah. was forced. Yeah. And so to, to see now, I mean, I, I'd have to look at the, the roster, but there's at least like five or six of us from that class. <laughs> Um, and it's, it's like, it's earth shattering to me that they didn't have to do this, that I had to do this, that they didn't have to do this. They made it through without having to do it. Did you ask them? What did they say? No, you know, I didn't. The, the second guy that I kissed, um, was in my class, was a boy in my class. He, 
we, we it was a New Year's in high school, a New Year's Eve party, and we were playing spin the bottle in a group of friends. And I spun the bottle and it landed on him. And I went to go spin it again because that's what you did if you landed on the same gender in those days. Yeah. Um, and I went to go spin it again and he said, no, you don't have to. And I remember Whoa. thinking, like, this is weird. Like, I've never had this experience with a boy. But I still wasn't really, like, I didn't, I, it didn't click through in my mind that he might be gay. Like, I kissed him. <laughs> he, he was always kind of this, like, dick to me in general. And so he continued to be a dick to me. And I continued to just think he was a dick. And it never really occurred to me to think, like, he may be struggling with his sexuality and manifesting it by being, you know, defensive and offstanding. Uh, yeah. Um, but he was, he was one of them. He, he subsequently came out. He went to college in France. He came out. He's, of course, married. I'm dying alone over here, by the way. But this guy who came out later, this guy who came out later than me has, of course, been married, uh, you know, for, I think, God, like seven or eight years now. Um, still a dick. And still a dick. <laughs> yeah. He actually, you know, he got better. He did get better. Uh, I think, I yeah, think the college yeah. and the coming out process made him get better. And I did, I did go to his wedding, which was very sweet. He's just, he's just a dick for being happy, is all I'm saying. He is a dick. Yeah. He is a for being happy that's true all, all these people it's there is some kind of weird correlation between people um who come out later and settling down and i don't know what that's about because it's that Whoa. that was that was this one guy zach zach has zach came out later than me by a couple years and has been married for seven or eight years now um what? alex is another guy that i went to school with i just saw him when i was out in san francisco i was out in san francisco for a month he's married has two kids um what? he came out he came out after me it's 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 there's something about it like they come out later and they immediately get into a relationship and then all of a sudden they're married it's crazy what do you think that is what is that i you know i thought about it mostly uh jealously and bitterly but i <laughs> i have thought of, i have thought about it to try to figure out what it is i don't know if it's that they their process of coming out means they have a longer time to kind of study what they like and are able to better identify it. Whereas maybe those of us who came out earlier, just kind of emotionally shoved out with no tools, kind yeah. of have to date, date around and see. Um, yeah. I, don't, I don't know, but we talk about it a lot. It's like a common conversation topic for single gay men to recount <laughs> the people that they know who came out late in life. I mean, in their, in, in their 20s or even in their 30s who their they, their first boyfriend they met five seconds after they came out and then their first boyfriend was their husband you know That's so interesting and, yeah it's it's wild i wonder if it's not like uh like when i worked at a jewish summer sleepaway camp and it was one of those things where all the all the kids were like all the counselors were like there since they were you know like little tiny kids and they grew up at the camp and became counselors at the camp. And I just started as a counselor and uh, that put me at this like odd advantage to finding a relationship because it was like, you know, I was the fresh meat in the space <laughs> and then someone could yeah. grab onto me and, uh, and kind of stick with it. I wonder if there isn't something like that along those lines. I mean, if you're, you're working in sort of very small communities, everyone knows everyone. If you're out for a while, you know, in a town like Providence, then, I, mean, I don't know how, how big the community is in Providence, but I, I don't imagine it's like New York City. And yeah. uh, you kind of know everyone. And then when someone new comes in, it's like, oh, hey. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that is 100% a thing for us, for sure. I mean, I, I think I was in D.C. for 12 years, which is like uh -huh. for, forever, you know, in terms of being the new fresh meat. And so yeah. 
Um, I, I thought when I came to New York, I was like, you know, everyone is, is, you know, beautiful and successful in New York. Like I, it's going to be an uphill battle for me, but there was some degree for me of being the new gay guy. Uh, I was dating someone at the time, so I couldn't do anything with it. Um, but I, I noticed that I got attention from guys of the sort that I wasn't getting in DC. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. You know, where I really noticed it was when I was in San Francisco for this last, uh, I I was in San Francisco for the month of February. And I, I've always been very hard on myself about my looks and I have the same self-confidence issues that plague many gay men and many women. Um, so Hmm. I, I, I am not very nice to myself. I don't consider myself, you know, in the same terms that friends tell me that they perceive me as, um, and nevertheless, like it was, it was hard to argue with going out to a bar in San Francisco and having like six people come over and talk to you. And it was like <laughs> surreal. Like I just, I went out by myself and this guy wants to buy me a drink and this guy wants to know where I'm from. And it was kind of like, what's happening here? Like, I don't, why are they all paying attention to me? I'm very used to slipping under the radar and no one talks to me in here. It's almost like (laughs) uncomfortable. It was crazy. I mean, it gives you a, it gives you an ego boost. That's like, you know, what the hell's going on here? Maybe I should move here. (laughs) San Francisco is something different, man. San Francisco is like, wow, that is a different city all around. And it has got to be a really different city for folks who move there who didn't grow up there, but moved there, you know, as gay people, that, that has got to be something really, really different. Yeah. I've always loved going there. My, that was one of the places I actually thought about running away to. My parents took me there. I think when I was 15, maybe it was before I came out. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, but I, I was so close to that point. I remember specifically walking past a store that was playing a song and I wrote down the lyrics and Googled it later because I thought it was like the best song I'd ever heard. Uh, Paula, Paula Abdul, straight up. <laughs> <laughs> like, talk about a gay kid. The gay kid who writes down the Paula Abdul lyrics and goes and finds them later. Like, he was a gay boy, like, just come out. But I wasn't out at that point. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, being in, being in San Francisco at that age, I mean, it was, it was part that I saw so many different people, different clothes, different hairstyles, different, you know, just actions and activities. And it was also, I was a, I was a tech guy. I've always been a tech guy. Um, and that was, that was tech boom 1.0. You know, that was, that was the first dot com boom. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, there was a 24 hour, cable tv network about technology and people were pumping millions of dollars into the most random ventures just because they had dot com at the end of their name so to be at san francisco at that time was awesome and it even as much as it's changed and lord has it changed since i was 15 16 it's different um, yeah yeah it's different but it still has when i when i go back there i can still see even some fragments of that feeling of just yeah. this cool alternative city in a way that the, there's nowhere on the East coast like that. It's just- still like that. It's just, everyone's getting priced out now. Yeah. But, it's, but it's, it's, it's harder like to that. find. Yeah. Yep. People are getting priced out. It's harder to find. Even Oakland yep. is getting pricey and pricing mm-hmm. people out, you know? Yeah. It's probably just a matter of time before you move there though. <laughs> it really is. something I thought about it, you know, my, my, uh, you know, my headquarters for my job is there. Um, there are certainly professional reasons it would make sense for me to be there. It would be, um, it would be a familiar place to put down roots. I have a lot of friends and and that is probably, 
it's gotta be the city I've been to the most, you know, like yeah. I, I, I've, I was for a while going there once a year, if not more. And now that headquarters is there before, you know, the Corona age, I was going out there probably five, six times a year. Um, yeah. so I, I know the city pretty well. I know the people there pretty well. It'd be a comfortable place to go. Um, I think the only thing for me is I've gotten used to the size of New York. I've gotten used yeah. to the 24 hour nature. I've gotten used to the density. I've gotten used to the craziness and the, the chaotic aspects of it. And um, going back to a smaller city at this point would, would feel a little odd. Um, yeah. But maybe you never know. I'm not going to be in New York forever. I know that like, you know, you, no one can do that. People who stay yeah. here forever are crazy people. I'm not, you know, yes. I'm not going to be here forever. <laughs> Eventually they are. Yeah. But, but every city does that to people, you know, at some point you, you just get too lost. It's best to live in a bunch of cities, I think, just to grab that perspective. I think that's right. And and there's something about New York too, just because of the way it always is. I mean, I, I read a story the other day about someone who said and had all evidence seemingly intact that he had not left Manhattan for 30 years, the island That's of Manhattan for 30 insane. years. And That's and insane. he seemed to have a certain amount of pride about that. And I, that's Same. not me. That's never going to be yeah. me. You know, I, I've traveled to dozens and dozens of countries. I relish the opportunity to see different places just in our own country. Um, there's such interesting things from the smallest town to the biggest city, to the woods, to the desert, to, you know, the Everglades everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't imagine, I'm just, I just know I'm not going to live in New York forever. It's just, at this point, it's indefinite. It's, it's, there's yeah. no other place that's calling my name. And so it's perfectly fine in many ways, great to be here. Um, but it, it is not a forever place. Yeah. It's a, it's definitely a great city living in Southern, you know, living in San Diego now, um, being, you know, sort of a New Yorker by identity. It's sort of funny because I feel like a New Yorker here, but I'm definitely a Southern Californian when I go to New York now. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. just, you know, I smile too much. <laughs> it, it know, is. That's, that's what it is. <laughs> and it's so, it's so funny to think of you being here because, you know, those, the, the, the two times I remember, you know, coming up to for new, for, it was for new year's. Yeah. We came yeah. up for new year's and we stayed in uh, each of at least two of your apartments. Yep. And, and I remember yeah. coming up here and I remember, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. I mean, you had that one apartment that had like the, the wraparound outside area, that yeah. outside space. Yep. Um, yep. And, and you know, the, the bathroom you had to walk up steps to get into. That's yeah. crazy. Why does a bathroom need steps? But it was so cool. Their bathroom has steps you have to go up. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was there's, uh, there, there are still parts of New York that even now at 36, having lived here for six years, there's still parts of New York that, you know, make my mouth drop. And there are moments in time when I still have a, a wonder about this place. But it's oh, yeah. not like it was then. You know, it's not like when you don't live here and you live somewhere else and you come yeah. here for like a weekend yeah. And you yeah. walk out of Penn Station or walk out of a cab from the airport into this mass and you go to an apartment like the one you had or the one I have now. And it's just like, holy shit, like this is a crazy place. Yeah. 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 It's it's usually when you have like company that comes stays with you, you know, and then you start yeah. seeing things again they didn't see for a while because you're showing you're pointing it out to them. Or totally. times like this, you know, where it's like all of a sudden you've got sort of a different view or understanding of things. Um, yeah. Or something else interesting happens. Like, were you in New York? Did you ever get up up to New York to see um, uh, the gates 
display the Gates art installment at Central no, Park. Do you remember that? No, I do remember it. Yeah, I remember the, the big orange. Um, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah I remember seeing pictures of it. Gates. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you walk through it and it's just, I mean, it was stunning because it was just suddenly a different view of the park and yeah. you're seeing depth in a different way and interacting with it in a different way. So, you know, then you kind of build that perspective again and then, uh, then it sticks around for a little bit and then you get used to it again. And then someone comes and visits and the cycle continues, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's kind of, that's kind of how it goes. It's, it's incredible. Those, those mass art installations that are so accessible. I know that, I know oh. that some people, I know that some people trash them, but like I, there, there are ones that they have done that I find so incredible. One of the ones that I will always remember that they did in New York was before I moved here, but it was at a time when I was kind of almost here. Uh, your sister was already here. Yeah. I, I like it. I like it or not. I never have asked her about this, but I, I was coming up basically like once a month and crashing on her <laughs> yeah. couch. Cause I was like, I'm very over DC. I miss my friend, Sarah. And I, <laughs> and I want, to be in New York and she has so far not refused me coming up and staying on her couch and I will just I will just do it once a month um anyway there was there was some time during that era where I came up and there was the coolest light installation in um Madison Square Park like right by the Flatiron building yeah they they suspended somehow above the entire geography of the park this lattice work of of cables and hanging light bulbs and the light bulbs filled the entirety of the park. They were hanging on different heights up and you, they were not so spaced together that you couldn't walk through them. You could walk through them, which was part of the fascination, but they would hang on these long cables and they would swing in the wind and different lights turned on at different times. And I just remember there was some night I'd gone on a date with this guy walking back with kind of like a, you know, a little bit of a wine drunk and standing in the middle of this display of lights in the middle of a storm, a rainstorm, as the lights blew back and forth. It was like one of the coolest moments I've had in New York. It just was unbelievable. Wow. You know? And that you hear those really, people sometimes really cool. that are trashing these installations and I'm just like, you know what? I, it's kind of like how I feel about wine. I, I am not an expert in wine, but if I like wine, if I like a kind of wine, I will get more of that wine. And I don't care if someone out there says, like, that's stupid wine. You know what? Fuck you. I like that bottle of wine. That's how I yeah. feel about that light installation. You can tell me that that was a stupid light installation as, like, an art history person. We should ask Jeremy. We should call Jeremy up and say, like, did you like... Yeah, we should call Jeremy and say, like, did you like that light installation? Did you think it was basic? You know what? I don't care because that moment in time in the middle of that rainstorm, in the middle of all those light bulbs in Madison Square Park, that was like one of the best times in New York I've ever had. So I don't care if it was good art or bad. It was good for me. It's it's beautiful. No, but I'm 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 with you 100 percent. Talk about cities where people lose their minds. And I I had a chance to live in Jerusalem a bunch of years ago and people do lose their effing minds in Jerusalem. But in the old city in this uh, place that they call David's Citadel, which is like mm-hmm. basically this old castle. King David was never the king there, but it was like where the king stayed in the old city. And, um, and Chihuly, the famous, you know, glass artist, um, yeah, created yeah, yeah. an installation exhibit there. And it was stunning. Um, you know, I mean, it was just, he, he made it for the site as typical. And then as usual, they destroy it afterwards, except for just a few pieces that they keep. Yes. And, mm-hmm. um, and because of the nature of this little kind of museum thing, you know, there's all these little nooks and crannies for the, where the castle where you can kind of walk in and it's like a little parapet section. And then there's like, he put some glass there, you know? 
Um, and, uh, you know, say what you will about Chihuly. Like it was stunning. It was stunning. Yeah. And I went at night a couple of times, like on a hot, you know, summer Jerusalem night and walk around in this thing with like the incredible lighting and just the orangeness of the stone. And then, uh, all the beautiful glass work done there. I mean, it was awesome. So, yeah. um, I love yeah, this hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. Did you ever see there was an exhibit that went around? I, I know it was in DC for a little bit and I think it was in New York too, where they were taking like old, um, uh, like Manet paintings, like, um, uh, what's that called? The French, uh, um, the hell kind of paint, impressionist paintings kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And then turning yeah. them into three dimensional, like exhibits that you could walk through. Oh and, no, that sounds then, cool though. Yeah, it was so cool. And then they would place a camera in the spot where it would catch the image exactly as the painting is. So then you could like oh, walk around inside the painting and then kind of like pose in a certain section and someone could look at you on the screen and see you in this like really classic, you know, Manet or something. I mean, it was like oh, really cool. Right. Isn't that cool? That's and you awesome. could totally like, that's like an art snobs nightmare, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I just, you know, I just, I, I've always been that kind of person where I just, I like what I like and, you know, sometimes it correlates, you know, like there Mm -hmm. was, I remember when people asked, there was this one time I will point out, there was a big dinner that we had in law school. We went to a fancy restaurant. This wine book was like 700 pages thick. And I found a bottle of wine that I was going to get, but the sommelier came over and gave us a whole talking to. And I said, you know, this person likes this and this person likes that. And this is the kind of food we're going to get. He picked the same bottle. So, you know, sometimes I get it. Sometimes there I get the thing that, <laughs> that the classy people think is the classy thing. Sometimes there's also the thing I like. But I'm also very content with, you know, a, a table red wine that is familiar uh-huh. and I enjoy that snobs would think is, you know, piss. Uh-huh. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. all the same, in my opinion, at least, the coolest people are the ones who recognize the awesomeness and sort of both of those things. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Like, those are the ones that and I sort of like the best. Yeah. With with art, like if art inspires you and if art brings something up in you, brings forward an emotional reaction, then like who's to say whether it's good or bad? Like it had an impact on you that would not have happened but for its creator making it and displaying it and you witnessing it. And like that's the you know, that's the only thing I really have to say. Like it it called something forward in you and that makes it good. 100%. I remember, uh, so my grandparents, you, you've been to my grandparents' house, right? Did you ever make your way yeah. there? I so, so. You, there are collectors, I mean, big time. And, uh, so their house is like a museum. It's filled with beautiful paintings and sculptures. Remind me where it is. Where is Larchmont, it? Larchmont, New York. Oh, maybe you know them. I might be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Get Sarah to take you there one of these days because okay. it's a pretty cool experience being just in that house and seeing all the beautiful paintings and sculptures and things like that. But my grandparents, so they were really into that, but they also were kind of just into hanging out and doing kind of real people stuff. But there are ways in which the you kind of your your love for one thing translates into your love for other experiences. So I remember my my grandparents took me on a trip to France. And while we were there, they because we were in Paris, they decided that they needed to take me to a, like a real French cabaret. Um, mm-hmm. And so we went to a French cabaret and it was, you know, theater style seating. My grandma on one side of me, my grandfather on the other side of me, and like, you know, eight or nine of the most beautiful naked dancing women you could possibly imagine in front of you. Oh my and gosh. Like, yeah. And I'm like 19 years old. And as we're walking out, my grandma turns to me and goes, don't you just love the female form? <laughs> oh, <laughs> 
Oh my god! It was like perfect, you know, because that was like I was like, no, I was like, yes, and I love you for being the kind of grandma who, like, you know, is like, yeah. uh, you know, really just experiencing it for that way. So, you know, she looked at that, she experienced that through the mind of someone who enjoys art. And, totally. um, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah, I those are definitely the best kind of people. So what <laughs> happened next? What, what happened next for you? I mean, things kind of come together for high school. Um, do you dip again? And so, I mean, certainly there, are, there are dips and, you know, um, great times and tough times throughout an entire life, but was there ever another sort of like significant dip into depression after that? Or did you find that you built, sort of enough inner fortitude and strength to really just be on an, on the up and up since then? No, you know, it, it's a journey. I think for, for all of us that have suffered through some moment like this in our life, I think, well, it sounds kind of grand to say, like, I think that it's not just a one-time experience. I don't have any data to back that up. I don't know if that's actually a thing. My, my perception sure. is if you have been depressed, it's at least possible perhaps even likely that there will be something else in your life where that comes back up. Yes. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, there, there have been up and down moments. I mean, I think that, I think that the next thing that I struggled with is, you know, having been that kid who at 14, who thought he had friends was then abandoned and left yeah. alone. And then having been the kid that struggled with being different, there was definitely a point in my life where I realized there were, there were several points throughout my life where this happened, where it seemed like I had become a cool kid. Huh. And the the kind of like feeling of that was so intoxicating, having been the kid that wasn't cool, you know, having yeah. been the I had, you know, at various points, I had braces, or I had big glasses, or I had right. a mullet, or, <laughs> you know, I, I was the kid that no one wanted to invite over to a party, like I was that kid. But there have been times in my life where, for whatever reason, like, you know, the, those years at the end of high school, the, the last maybe year, year and a half in high school, when I was going out to bars and going out to clubs and dancing with people that were much older than me, like, I was definitely one of the cool kids then. Yeah. And yeah. There, were, there were moments in college where, you know, I was with a group of friends and it just, you know, it was clear that, like, there were people who were envious of us. And those, those times where I thought those things usually involved me not being myself huh. um, and pretending to be someone else and trying so desperately to like, once I got a taste of like what it was like to be like popular and cool, um, just being desperate to maintain that. So in high school that manifested as like, I, I fell into a new group of friends um, and who liked to go out and liked to dance. But that girl who I mentioned before, who had the friends, the boy who I kissed for the first time, that girl yeah. that was so nice to me and she was yeah. so accepting of me and so nurturing and such a wonderful friend. Yeah. I treated her badly. And, huh. you know, I, I, she wasn't, one of the quote unquote cool kids. She wasn't one of the ones that was wearing fancy clothes and going out to these bars. She still wanted to just hang out at her house like we used to. And right. so I pushed her away and wasn't very nice to her. Um, right. And that, ha that happened again in college where I wanted to be too cool for school. 
and fell in with a crowd of kids that, you know, were doing drugs and were drinking a ton and Mm -hmm. kind of pushed away, you know, the people in my life who'd always been good standbys. Um, So, and then most of those kind of came with a crash where I realized that I was being fake, that I wasn't being authentic, that I wasn't being true to myself. So those were kind of mini episodes where I would go back to therapy and try to work through yeah you know what what is it that i'm going through so there was a moment in college where i put myself back in um you know because i was really spiraling out of control with drugs and alcohol and enough friends sat down and told me they were worried about me Mm -hmm. and so it was kind of like let's explore this um yeah yeah i put myself i put myself back into therapy at the end of my first long-term relationship we dated for five years and at the end of it, it it almost wasn't so much the breakup, but it was that I had changed my life so much to try to like make him happy mm-hmm. that I was a shell of my former self. And so it was right. about like, how did I get here? Why did I get here? Why did I do this for that guy? Right. Um, so it's, it's been a battle, you know, I, I, I've mostly been okay later in my adult life, but I certainly put myself back in therapy after the end of my second long-term relationship. Um, mm-hmm. it, that is something ending that, ending that relationship was, that's the first time I've ended a relationship. The the other long-term relationship I was in, the, the guy broke up with me. This oh. most recent relationship that I was in, it ended in 2016 and I was the one who ended it and I'd never done that. And sure. that experience I've been, I've been dealing with that for four years and we've, we've been broken up at this point longer than we were together. And I still am working through the issues from ending that relationship. Yeah. I've, I'm actually very, I'm actually 100% similar to you in that. And I, I like just had a, most of my life pretty much until I got divorced that all the relationships that I had, they ended. Um, yeah. or life ended, you know, like, you know, dating somebody yeah. in college and then you graduate and, you know, or dating someone at summer camp and then summer ends, you know what I mean? So, yeah. um, yeah, yeah. but, uh, but since then I've been like on this run <laughs> yeah. and it's amazing. And I didn't really like getting divorced. I didn't, I didn't really like mourn the relationship as much as I mourned, you know, like being in a different place for my kids and making that like shift and everything else. But the, my latest breakup, I, I also did. And I'm with you on that, man. It does. It messes with you in a really interesting way. Um, yeah. It's fascinating. It's really fascinating. With um, with the other guys, I mean, I think the thing that I see is done for me, and I'm not sure if this is the case for you, um, but, you know, with, with other guys, whether it was something short-term, you know, any one of the short-term relationships I was in, I was in with that they ended, or it was the first long-term relationship I was in that he ended, it was... God, you know, certainly painful and certainly awful. There was a lot of pain there. But I think each time I was able to say to myself, like, well, you know, I wanted to try and they didn't. You know, they wanted to end it. And so not not saying that the reason this relationship ended is any one particular person's fault, but just as like a factual matter I was willing to continue trying and they were not. And so there's just like, there's some degree of you can like make yourself feel better about that. Like they gave up and I was willing to try. 
And so it just, it, you know, it makes you feel a little bit better about the situation. Even if the entire time they're telling you they're breaking up with you because of X, Y, and Z thing that you did, right. you were still willing, you were still willing to try. Right. And my experience in breaking up with him, you know, it was, there's, he didn't do anything wrong. I mean, that was the thing that was the hardest thing about it. You just, I realized that we were not right there was never anything that was so wrong that, that he did that was cause for us to break up. But I just realized it wasn't right. And right. it just nodded me until the point where I needed to end it. And I loved him so much. I love him exactly as much today. He is the most yep. wonderful man. I still consider him a friend. I still consider him family. I'm glad that we've been able to kind of connect and have again some sort of relationship and some some sort of friendship. But if he called me up today and asked me to do anything, I would do it for him because I just, I love him so yeah. much. But yeah. I realized that we weren't right for each other. And eventually I came to the point where I decided to end it. And I've never questioned that decision. I've never thought for a moment that I was wrong, but I know that I hurt him. Yeah. And for four years, I have been dealing with trying to forgive myself for that. And yeah. that has been a huge reason of why I have been single this entire time is that I have said, I will not allow myself to get into a position where I will hurt someone or may have to hurt someone again. I just won't do it. And if I'm not in a relationship, it can't happen. Yeah. Um, and, and that is, you know, that is a real problem. Like that's not fair. I know factually, you know, academically, that that's not a fair thing to put on myself. I've been working with a therapist for four years who pretty much every week reminds me, you are not this monster. You are not someone who hurts someone. This is something that happens in relationships. This is okay. And if you, if, if, if it wasn't a right relationship, then you did the right thing and you should feel good about that. Nevertheless, we are four years out from this three-year relationship and I still remember the look on his face. I still... Yeah remember when I hurt him and I still feel like it is the worst thing I have ever done. I just, I it's, have this, it's very hard. Yeah. I have this, uh, like indelible memory of, you know, being in my own space and feeling a lot of pain as I was doing it. And like, we, like we were seeing a therapist and like, I did it in therapy, you know? So yeah. we, like I did it as That's right. The place as, for it. That's the place for it, hundred percent. I did it. No, that's the best place for it. Absolutely, you're supportive. It totally is, and and I did it like as right as I could possibly do it, except for one, except for one example is which I'll mention to you in one second. But I I distinctly remember like being in my car, crumpled, and then taking a deep breath and getting up and sort of starting my car and driving away, but then passing her car. And she was still crumpled in her car. Um, and um, yeah. and just the pain of that, you know, of just like, this is yeah. this person who I love. This is a choice that I had to make. And um, and I, you know, really, really hurt her. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's, um, it's yeah, I, I feel that, you know. My challenge is, conversely from you, and, and I wonder, like, kind of how you took this path, but I sort of allowed myself to get too unhealthy mental health wise before I left her, if that makes sense. Like, like I, like I was communicative in terms of the changes I needed to see in order for it to be a healthy, good relationship with me. We were working on it and it just, the changes weren't coming fast enough. And I was sort of sinking faster and faster. 
and actually kind of let myself get to a point where I like pretty much spiraled and wrote a suicide note and um, did all this stuff. And then, and then woke up like, you know, a few days later, um, you know, kind of to where my mind was at thinking, okay, this is, this is now like really, really unsafe. Um, and you know, we're not going to transform quick enough into the kind of relationship that like I would need in order for this to be healthy for me. And so I, this is the point where I need to go. And on one hand, there's a part of me that's like, Hey, good for you for giving her a chance until you couldn't take it anymore. (laughs) And then the rest of me is like, no, 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 no. (laughs) That's probably not the best approach. Like, don't wait until you're fucking suicidal before you like go ending a relationship. You know, you like have to recognize the signs and sort of figure out how to go from there. So I wonder if that was part of it for you. Like how, how much extra time did you give them? Um, yeah, I mean, I in in both of these long term relationships, they should have ended earlier, and yeah. I see that I see that in hindsight. You know, the the one I was in, the first one I was in, I was in for five years, mm-hmm. and honest to God, when I when I really look at that in the harsh light of God, we we that was two thousand four to two thousand. 10, 2011. So it's, we're, we're a decade removed from that. Looking at that a decade later, that should have been a six month relationship. Yeah. It absolutely should have been a six month relationship. And we just didn't know. We were boys. We were boys. We were, we were our first long term relationship for each of us. And we had no idea what we were doing. And we were both desperate to make it work. And we both clung on to it way longer than we should have. With my second relationship, I don't think that it was that cut and dried. I don't think that it was, you know, instead of five years, it should have been six months with, with this most recent relationship that was, that was three years. There were warning signs, you know, for sure. Um, you know, maybe halfway through. So maybe it should have been half as long if, if I had what I know today. Um, but I, I don't think that it was that I let myself get incredibly depressed too far before I ended it. I think I just kind of endured a relationship that I wasn't happy in and that I knew he wasn't happy in. And I let that go on for a little bit longer. The real apex of depression with this particular relationship came about three months after it ended because we ended it. We were still very gentle with each other. I mean, I, I have looked back at a text message that he sent me the evening after the morning that he moved out. So I, I broke up with, I broke up with him. We were living together. We lived together for a little while longer until he could find, you know, a new place to go. And then he moved out and that the evening, maybe six or seven hours after he left, we, we talked before we went to bed and it was like the sweetest text exchange. I think that we yeah. said that we loved each other. I think we yeah. said that we knew this was really hard. We were supporting each other still even though that we were broken up and he'd moved out, I'd, I'd gone to stay with a friend because I was inconsolable and yeah. he was with a friend, but we were still really gentle with each other. And we were able for about maybe three months following the end of that relationship to see each other from time to time. Mm-hmm. And it's still, you know, everything about this was hard, but we at least were still connected. Yeah. And then at about three months, he severed it. Yeah. And I went completely off the deep end. I just, yeah. I really, really 
fell into fell into a pit that was reminiscent of when I was 16 and thinking about killing myself. I mean, I, I distinctly remember a moment where I was sitting on the roof of my apartment building and I just was saying out loud, I called, I I called my therapist at like four o'clock in the morning. It was after like a drug and alcohol fueled bender. The sun was starting to come up. And I remember I called him. He didn't pick up. I called a couple of friends and they didn't pick up. And I just remember sitting on the roof and just saying, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. I, I just, I could not handle not being connected to him, even though I was the one who chose to do it. I couldn't handle this idea that he was in a place where he felt like he had to just stop returning my calls, stop responding to text messages and make a clean break. I just could not handle that. And so that was the lowest part. And that, that lasted for, a few months of, of like rock bottom, being super self-destructive, being inconsolable, being a huge mess before I was able to kind of pull myself out of it. It's so much like cancer, isn't it? Yeah. You know? Yeah, it is. I mean, from, from, put it, yeah. Yeah. You send it into remission, um, but then it's always kind of there in the back of your mind. You know, when's it going to come yeah. back? What What's going to happen? You know, um, I can visualize ahead and think of like, you know, future life moments that'll, that'll I'm sure come down the road. And, um, yeah. and then, you know, how am I going to be able to sort of handle it or deal with it? And then like, just that voice is, you know, there sometimes louder, sometimes quieter. And I ended up, um, one of the things I did, so I, I've done, um, a dialectical behavioral therapy for a while. Have you heard of that before? No, it's not. It's uh, basically the the child of cognitive behavioral therapy, which I guess is the child of psychotherapy. Um, okay. But the, the whole idea is like, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy is to help people who maybe aren't in their brains enough to get in their brains. And then people who are in their brains a lot to learn how to manage it, you know. So um, yeah. folks who are kind of, you know, making sort of thoughtless decisions that are hurting others cognitive behavior or themselves, cognitive behavioral therapy will help them to sort of recognize it. Dialectical is a more specific version of that, where what we do is we kind of look at anything that happens is there's going to be a dialectic to it. So there's going to be positive sides to the story, negative sides to the story, things that are good, things that are challenging and um, sort of grabbing that perspective sort of helps, helps us to, you know, it's kind of a nice way to help to sort of manage it. Um, Okay. Yeah. But it also kind of gives you a lot of other skills that like, you know, that I've sort of looked at and have kind of helped me to sort of think it through. And yeah, you know, looking ahead and thinking about sort of what's out there for me, I 100% know that, you know, there's going to be a time when it comes down the road again. Um, but one of the things that I've done to kind of help my, you know, my sort of train of thought there is I've disassociated the depressive voice from my own personality. Does that make sense to you? So I like, I kind of, I call him Frank. <laughs> and Frank, Frank is kind of a dick, you know, actually yeah. Frank, he's a huge dick. Um, yeah. but the, the weird thing about Frank is, is that he also loves me in the weirdest way. And yeah. it's kind of just there to protect me. But the way he protects me is by telling me that I'm an awful human being who doesn't deserve happiness even at all. And then yeah. when I don't get it, it's what I was expecting. You know what I mean? And that's why you're protected. And that's why I'm protecting. Yeah, exactly. Um, But to sort of like call him Frank and then to kind of lovingly just kind of hold the door open for him and, you know, ask him to leave. And he never does. He never does. (laughs) He always stays. The party's been over for a long time and he just is sticking around and, you know. um, But uh, yeah, it's something that I've kind of like, like 
I've found sort of helpful, but it also makes me feel a little bit like a lunatic. And, um, you know, it's one thing to break up with someone who, like, you just know that you're, you know, that you're just not right for each other and it's the right decision. But then when you start putting that in the, like, in the context of, well, now I have to go meet somebody else. And I need to meet somebody else in the larger context of, like, I'm a human being with this much more problems now. <laughs> it's fascinating. It's totally fascinating. So I wonder, like, has that something, is that something that you've sort of found along the way of just, like, God, anyone I meet, like, I just need to tell them, you know, just so you know, like, you're dealing with a person here who's had depression and all this stuff. I wonder if that's something that you sort of deal with there. Yeah, I mean, I... I, I've heard since I was in college of like the way that you're supposed to act around people that you're interested in, like you're supposed to be cool and you're not really supposed to show emotion and you're not really yeah. supposed to tell them how you feel. And there's like, you have to play the game. I have never been able to do that. Like I, no. I have always, I've always been completely like an open book when I interact with anyone. And, you know, it's, it's, it's so funny that you, that you brought this up just now because I, I just, yesterday had that experience there was a there was a guy that i met you know it's the time of corona uh-huh. and there was a guy there was a guy that i met while i was volunteering and you know he seemed really nice he was already volunteering so i know he cares about things other than himself and that was a good sign and um he just you know we went for we we got to talking and we ended up going for a date we walked my dog and he seemed like a really nice cool guy and um, we were supposed to hang out again and, uh, and watch a movie. And mm-hmm. I hadn't really, you know, it's COVID time and it's scary to be around people, but he had already gone through an infection and gone through it and has the antibodies. And there's studies that suggest that that means he can't give it to me. And, mm-hmm. you know, he'd also seemingly been relatively careful. So I thought like, maybe this isn't the worst thing in the world. We were already in pretty close quarters when we were volunteering. Maybe I can go over to his house and watch this movie. Yeah. Um, and, and then he changed, uh, he changed it up and said that we were instead going to go over to one of his friends and watch oh. it there. And I, I haven't had any symptoms of Corona and I did get the test and I do not have the, the antibodies. So that suggests that I am still vulnerable and we still don't know how, you know, 30 year olds are going to handle it. Most of the time it's good, but sometimes it's not. So I said to him kind of like, what's, what's the scene with this? And he made me feel kind of dumb for asking. He's like, what do you mean? What's the scene? Like it's four guys watching a movie. Like who cares? And I, I just, I didn't like that he made me feel stupid and I didn't like that he was being cavalier about my health. Um, and I just, you know, it was, I didn't like that he converted a, what I thought was a date into a friend hangout. I mean, even before like Corona, like that would have been pretty fucked up. Like I thought yeah. we were hanging out one-on-one and so we're hanging out with your friends. I didn't want to do that. Yeah. So I, you know, I kind of, I kind of blew him off. He also said he was going to be gone for most of June. So I kind of blew him off for that too. Like, you're not going to be around. I'm not really going to take you seriously. And then like fast forward a week, um, I, it was a Friday night where I normally watch a, the drag race, RuPaul's drag race with friends. We usually drink during it. And then of course it ends and there's nothing to do and you're kind of drunk and you're alone. <laughs> and, you know, he reached out and texted me. And so I'm drunk and vulnerable and he, we got to talking and he said, do you want to come over? And so I did. And so 
I went over there and I did what I had done for most of the last four years, which was absolutely, this sounds like a good idea. It is very clearly a zero emotion, zero connection situation. We're just going to have sex and then I'm going to leave. And there's no risk of me hurting you. Like I had to hurt my ex-boyfriend. I'm not going to possibly be in that scenario because we're just going to have sex and I'm going to leave. And I just, for the last year, have been starting to think that that isn't something that I want to do anymore. I've started thinking for the last year that I would like to have more of a connection, but I was drunk and I was vulnerable and I did this anyway because it was familiar. And while we were having sex, I was just like, there is no part of me that's into this at all. I mean, I was looking down at him and I was like, you're objectively like so attractive and I should be so into this. And like, I'm sleeping with this hot guy. Like, isn't this amazing? And I couldn't make it happen. And I went home afterwards and I thought about why. And I was just like, you know, this is so predictable. Like, you knew that you were looking for more from this guy and instead you settled for something less, which was disappointing. You knew that you were upset with this guy for how he treated you. And rather than telling him that, like you just passed over it and did what he wanted. And that was upsetting to you. Like, of course, like you were, you were looking for something more than this. And so that happened a couple of days passed and he texted me again, um, responding to a photo that I'd posted and then suggesting that I come over again to repeat the whole thing. Another in a round of random sex. And I think, circling back, I think what the normal kids do, the average kids do in this scenario when they don't want to connect with someone anymore is they just ghost. They don't respond. That's the thing you're supposed to do. But I'm not like that. What I like is I'm going to tell you everything that's in my head. And so I did. And I was like, I'm conscious of while I write this to you that it's going to come off sounding crazy. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to write you 47 messages and it's going to explain everything from that i was in this long-term relationship i broke up with him i hurt him i couldn't handle that i'm not someone who hurts people i had random sex with people for four years not having any kind of connection i wanted to stop doing that i wanted to stop doing that with you i wanted something more than that with you but then things happen the way they happen and i ended up having random sex with you and i thought i could do it because that's what i used to do but then I did it and I didn't like it and I don't want to do it with you again. And I didn't want to just ghost you. I wanted to make sure you knew this, you know, how did he respond? Uh, you know, in exactly the way that you would expect an average person to respond. He's like, yeah. he's like, what? <laughs> like, like what just happened? Like I, I actually, I literally wrote him. I said, perhaps you, Perhaps you will have wished that I randomly ghosted on you, um, you know, but instead of sending you these 47 messages, and I think he probably did. I think he was like, what the fuck, dude? So he said, like, what? It, so what is it that you want? And I was like, we could be friends or we could go on a date, but I don't want to I don't want to have random sex with you. And, you know, it, it went nowhere. He, he it ended up and I think it ended with me somehow apologizing to him Jesus. for sending him. <laughs> For sending him mixed signals and then for sending him a long array of messages. And then I'm sure he'll never talk to me again. So, you know, like, it's that, for the that's best. how that went. It's, it's for, for the best. best. Oh, it's absolutely for the best. Oh it is it is sure thing for the best. Thank God. I, uh, okay, so um, the the first time in the, my online dating experience where I, like, kind of, like, really got that got that wrong in that moment. So there's this woman that I like kind of connected with, uh, on the, on one of the apps. 
And um, it was like a nice little on the app connection. Um, but her thing was like, it was like a Saturday and she was like, hey, can we talk on the phone on Monday? And I was like, yeah, okay. sure thing. But meanwhile, you know what it's like in those dating apps. There's like a million people and you're talking all at once. And sometimes oh, totally. like one jockey's ahead of another. And so like yep. from Saturday to Monday, I just connected to somebody and I kind of wanted to like follow that track. And I didn't want to yeah. like date two people at once because I just, I, I can't focus on two people at once. It's too, yep. it's too much for me. Um, and so uh, then around, you know, along comes Monday and I could like, I could just coast, I could just ghost this woman. I could totally yeah. just ghost her, but instead I want to do the mature thing because I promised myself going into this that I would do the mature thing and I'm going to tell her kind of what's going on. And so I got her yeah. on the phone and we talked for a couple of minutes. She's walking her dog while we're talking and like distracted on the phone. And she only has like 15 minutes for me, you know? And so already yeah. she's being kind of a dick. And, and then I tell her the deal. I'm like, look, you know, you seem like a cool person. That was a lie. I was like, you seem like a cool person. Um, <laughs> You know, I, uh, I, you know, you're certainly beautiful, all that stuff, but I just kind of, I'm not one of those guys that can sort of date more than one person at once. And I've sort of connected with this woman and she's interesting and I want to see where this path goes and, you know, but chances are, it's probably not going to work out. And so if you're interested, if it doesn't work out, you know, I'd be interested in calling you after, you know, and seeing kind of what's what, but that's sort of where it's at right now. And she yeah. was like, are you serious? And I was <laughs> like, I was like, yeah. And she was like, yeah. that's, she was like, that's the lamest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. She was like, oh, have God. you told other women this, other women this? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, don't ever tell another woman that. And then I just oh. kind of like folded in that moment, man. I was like, you know, well, you know, gosh, I'm, you know, you seem like you're really hurt by this. I'm sorry. You know, um, you know, I, I guess I should go and examine myself a little bit. Clearly, you don't want to talk to me anymore. And so I wish you the best of luck. And hung up the phone just feeling awful. And then yeah. later on, I had a session with my therapist. And she was like, wait a minute. <laughs> she was like, wait a minute. Can you just, like, repeat back to me what happened there? And I did. And suddenly, I, I was like, in that moment, I was like, oh, right. I was being a sincere human being and, like, actually doing the right thing. And she was being a dick, you know? Yeah just a dick yeah and like but like i didn't have the instinct in that moment to like as i was talking to her to be like you know what no because actually what assholes do is just ghost people and right. all i'm doing is being honest with you and so if you think that's a problem then i definitely don't want to get to know you any better you know and yeah. i i probably could have done I that think that's exactly right i yeah. think that's exactly right like you you what I, I didn't beat myself up about sleeping with this guy, even though that wasn't what I wanted because it was so predictable. It's like a scary, crazy time when I was alone and drunk and, and made a choice, but I didn't beat myself up about that. And when he reacted the way he did, same thing to, to what you just said. Like, I was just like, you are so clearly not the kind of person that is right for me. Like, yeah. it's just like, it's very obvious and on paper, like the way that you reacted, the, the person that I wanted, that I actually want to date would have reacted to that message being like, I, you know, completely understand what you're going through. And like, you know, like I would love to go on actual dates with you and see if we can make something of this. And like, yeah. you know, what can I do to help? Like they would have been generous with their time and they would have been empathetic and understanding. And instead, like the person you were dating was a dick and this guy was a dick. And it's just, you know, it's because they're dicks. It's not who yeah. we should be dating. Yeah, that's exactly right. There are a lot of those dicks out there. 
Just a yes. whole bunch of them. Yes. A whole bunch and of that's them. the that's the really hard thing to realize is that yeah. the kind of people that are right for us are unfortunately few. Yeah. Like yeah. that's just a thing that you have to realize is that there is just there are a lot of dicks out there and there are a lot of people that are willing to settle for that. Mm-hmm. And and we're not. No. No, we're not. We're not. I'm not capable of being. You know, yeah. it's just it's unhealthy for me to even yeah. think about going down that path. You know, so yeah. um definitely <laughs> it's definitely a thing. Um hey, we have been uh talking for two hours, by the way. How are you feeling? <laughs> I'm good, I'm good. I was gonna warn you I got a battery low message from my my headset. I have a backup headset, but Okay, um, good. <laughs> it, it did warn it did warn me of battery low issues, but I'm I'm good. Are you good? I'm definitely good. This is uh this is a great conversation, but I want to make sure not to you know, kind of tire you out too much or stress you out too much. And I'm also, you know, cognizant of kind of myself and all that stuff. And these kind of conversations can be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Do you want to keep going? If you like keeping kind of, um, is there a lot more that you feel like you want to share? Do you want to keep talking? I, you know, I, I've been talking to therapists for 20 years, so I've, I've got material for you for weeks, but I, um, and I'm also, I'm also happy to, to draw it to a natural end. I mean, I think we talked about a lot of good stuff. So if you'd like to close up the two hour mark seems a good, a good time to close up. It's definitely a good time to close out. And I haven't, um, found anything. I mean, just thinking through, you'll listen to it, but I can't think of anything that, you know, stands out in terms of maybe want to take that out, you know, and so this is really, no, I, I am so, as, as you may have seen or may not have seen, like I am, I am almost like uncomfortably public with my life. There, there really are, there really are no secrets. Like it's funny that I work for Facebook and that my entire life is still on Facebook because now my coworkers are seeing all of this same stuff. And so like if I had any wall at all in my life, it was between work and the rest of my life. And now even that down like no, even every, every, everyone knows everything i mean i i posted i posted a photo of that story about me uh kissing that boy for the first time when i was 16 like i posted that wow. to my facebook all my all my coworkers saw that my parents saw that their parents friends saw that like it's there isn't going to be anything we talked about today that i'm going to want to edit out perfect i i got a um a semicolon tattoo on my wrist have you ever really heard? yeah have you ever i've got no. like a gazillion, i've got like a gazillion tattoos now uh that's a new no, thing i didn't know that yeah, have you ever seen? Do you know? You know what that tattoo is all about, right? I mean, I can infer what it means. Is that, you know, you said something, but there's more to come. Yeah, basically. I mean, it's a uh, so it's a uh, if you Google like semicolon tattoo project, um, it's an anti suicide project um, really? created by this uh, young man at the time who struggled with depression and suicidal ideation. Sadly, he did actually relatively recently actually um, end up taking his life. So the whole idea of this being a lifelong journey that it comes back like cancer and goes away is a really powerful kind of thought. But the, the mindset of the semicolon tattoo is just that, you know, like you're coming to the end of a sentence and you could add a period, but you could also put yeah. a semicolon in and just keep going and it's your fucking sentence. So do it like sort of Absolutely. how you want, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah. what that's done is it's, I put it like on my right wrist on the pulse point. So I can't hide it in a long sleeve shirt. And when you're like, looking to date somebody and you have tattoos, the third question is, what are those tattoos about? <laughs> yeah. And oh, they can absolutely. Google, they can Google semicolon tattoo. So it's like one of the first pieces of information that I have to give someone is, um, I'm a person who struggled with suicidal ideation, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. it's a, a fascinating kind of thought, but it really is a sincerity check. 
You know, like if someone Absolutely. can get past that wall, then that means that they're genuinely interested in you and a person. They're not afraid of pain and uh, um, they want to kind of get something out of it. And I feel like in a weird way, that kind of gives us an advantage, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. we're not going to fuck around with a relationship that's not right for us. Um, but it might mean that, <laughs> that there's just a, you know, a swath of just dead bodies behind us. <laughs> uh, you know what? There, there are, what are we at? Seven billion people? There are seven billion people in the world. It, it is... Life is too short to be sticking around with the wrong one. There are so many other ones. Yeah. Not only are there 7 billion people in the world, but most of them are, you're just never going to meet, you know? Right. So yeah. the life path that a person has to go through in order to like be connected to us in the first place. It's so ridiculous. Oh my gosh. So um, anyway, but look, I, I like, you know, you're someone who I've known, like, you know, you like, you're like one of my sister's best friends. And, um, and she is also my favorite sister. She's all of our favorite sisters. Um, it's just one of those things. Are you allowed to say that on the air? <laughs> yeah, no, we, we all admit it. Um, because we all <laughs> kind of like, we all sort of agree about, about it, you know, I mean, but we'll all say that Sarah is our favorite for sure. Yeah. Um, she is, she is a better person than anyone that I've ever met for sure. She's, she's absolutely incredible. And she runs the roost. You know, basically nothing happens without Sarah agreeing or, you know, um, saying what's going to be going on. And she's basically the one that makes everything happen. So, um, so yeah, she's the best I've known, you know, you through her for a while and you're someone who, you know, is just, I've always loved you all those times that, you know, we've, we've been together, um, the, you know, various parties. I remember hanging out in, um, the apartment in Washington, D.C. before we had furniture and playing sock baseball on the floor uh, <laughs> in that apartment. And what a fucking so amazing, amazing. Oh, my uh, God. Burning the carpet with um, a hookah uh, coal, I think. Um, yeah. Just uh, being <laughs> terribly unhealthy human beings. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I never knew, like, a lot of your story. I knew some of it, but not a lot of it. Um, and hearing it just obviously really reinforced, re- reinforces for me how special you are and not just that, but also, you know, I feel personally like a lot of your story, I, I, like it's copacetic to me, like it, yeah. you know, I didn't go through a lot of the things that you went through, but a lot of it still makes sense in terms of not feeling like you fit in, feeling really desperate about that. Um, trying to find your way to your identity and then just the ups and downs of that kind of struggle. Um, so I'm just, I don't know, I'm really honored that you came on and we're willing to join on this, you know, project that I'm working on here. And I'm really yeah. glad that your narrative gets to be a part of it and early and early too. So, um, it just kind of makes well, thank me thank you. Yeah. I mean, thank you for this opportunity. It is, it is so great as always to talk to you. Um, and I always love the opportunity and, um, and I just, it's, it's just been great. So thank you. Yeah, my, my, my pleasure. And the other piece is this doesn't have to be the only time we record this podcast. Um, yeah. cause it really is an up and down. So I think it'd be kind of fun to check in with each other, like in August or September. Um, yeah. and kind of see where you're at is like we're transitioning out of quarantine and then totally. into like a more kind of normative sort of dating life, regular life, work life kind of deal. I think it'd be kind of cool to check in and sort of see how you're doing. So I'd love to do that. Yeah. And then the other piece is if you know anyone who you think would benefit or be interested in being a part of this, I'd love to talk with them too. So absolutely talk about that. But in any case, thank you yeah. so much for your time, Ben. It's always a pleasure. And, uh, we'll, uh, talk to you next time. 
All right, sounds good. I'll talk to you soon, and thanks again for everything.